Hey everyone, Chris Hewitt here for The Uninitiated. I am the host of the Empire Podcast, and if this is your first Empire Podcast, then welcome. You are in for a treat. In fact, even if you are a regular listener, you're in for a treat. Basically, everyone who listens to this podcast is in for a treat. A big old three-hour treat. Yes, three hours. The current issue of Empire, the world's biggest movie magazine, is a glorious celebration of those great moments you can only have when watching a movie in the dark with a group of like-minded people. It was curated by our unpaid intern for the month, Mr. Edgar Wright, a film director of some note, who recruited a who's who of Hollywood to talk about their favourite moments as audience members, as punters, as paying customers, as John and Jane Q. Popcorn, if you will. One name that was sadly absent from the lineup was one Quentin Tarantino, who was unable to write an entry in time for the deadline. But it's okay, because he agreed instead, graciously, to come and do a podcast with me and Edgar. And so, over the course of a Friday morning, last Friday morning, in fact, I got on the dread Zoom with Edgar, who was in central London, and Quentin, who is in Tel Aviv, and listened to them talk, mainly. And boy, did they talk. And talk. And talk. And talk some more. They talked about their greatest movie-going moments, how they plan to include moments that audiences will connect with in their own movies, and much, much more. Because, as if that weren't enough, they dive deep into the annals of British cinema, swapping titles and directors and suggestions and recommendations back and forth at a dizzying speed. It's a one-stop, three-hour film history class that somehow manages to squeeze in a cameo of sorts from another A-list director. You are going to love it, he said confidently. But before we begin, a couple of quick notes. Quentin was on an iPad and he was in a fairly echoey room, so his audio doesn't sound quite as good as mine or Edgar's does, but your ears should adjust to that in a couple of minutes max. I would see if you can also spot the bit where I get a bit of film trivia wrong. The one thing I did not want to do in the presence of two men who have forgotten more about movies than I will ever know. Listen out for it, although I have a feeling you won't be able to miss it. Right, that's enough from me. Here we go. Edgar Wright, Quentin Tarantino on the Empire Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special edition of the Empire Podcast. Now, the most recent issue of Empire is one of the best that I've ever been associated with, and I'm searing in on my 20th anniversary at the mag, so believe me, that is quite a statement. Uh, it is a celebration of those incredible moments you can only get when watching a movie in a cinema with an audience of like-minded souls. And this podcast is a companion piece to that. And for it, I'm joined by two men who you might know. One is our very own unpaid intern <laughs> and the driving force behind that feature. He is the director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, The World's End, 
Baby Driver, and the upcoming double whammy of Last Night in Soho and the Sparks Brothers is Mr. Edgar Wright. How are you, sir? Hello. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. And then shooting across down through Southern Europe, he is a man who has directed a number of motion pictures of interest over the years. You might even have seen a few. Let me list them. Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, Volumes 1 and 2, if you're so inclined, Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ladies and gents, Quentin Tarantino is on the Empire Podcast. Good to be here. Good morning. When was the last time you guys actually caught up in the in the same room together? Because obviously we're pandemic in um, we're we're separated by by some distance. It was uh, in London, right? Sure if I, I don't remember when the last time we were in the exact same room together, but Edgar is one of the five people that I have kept in touch with since I've been in <laughs> Israel. I know I know where we were last time. Is that it, we we did a QA in London for once one time in Hollywood with uh, me, you, David Heyman, and Robert Richardson. And then we went out to dinner afterwards with Alfonso Caron as well and had No, that was the day. I guess that was the last time we were together. Yeah. That's the last time we were in the same room and we closed down that restaurant. I think we were chatting until like four in the morning or something like that. You've been keeping in touch during this uh, this pandemic. Yeah, we've uh, uh, um, yeah. He'll talk about it later. We have we, we, we have our own little movie club going. We have our own little book club going on. Actually, yeah. No, it's nice. I mean, I think that's the thing. We we we've we we've kept in touch in a sort of a, in 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 the way that cinephiles do. So like uh, in in you know, uh, it's been one of the sort of bl- one of the very few blessings of this is the sort of the the chance to kind of disappear down a rabbit hole like with the. Um, the hours indoors that we have. Anyway, we'll come to that later. Edgar is more social than I am. So it's like a, you know, (laughs) it's a big deal that I've been talking to him this last nine months. I (laughs) appreciate it. He talks to a zillion people. All right. I talk to (laughs) five people. (laughs) <laughs> i appreciate it so guys well, what i wanted to do today first off was i wanted to uh talk about cinema moments in particular because that's the heart of this this feature in empire this this idea that edgar had which is to celebrate those great movie going moments that you've had um and quentin i mean i'm sure you've had a number over over the years but uh can you think of a of a couple of those great moments for you when you're with an audience and and shit goes down on screen well, I was thinking a lot about it, all right, coming up for this. And um, and I'd like us to get into kind of the minutia of, of uh, um, how different some of those things can be. When you, when, you, when you mention audience reaction, people normally think of like stand up and cheer moments mm-hmm. where you're rooting like in a football game or something. Or uh, they think of raucous comedy moments where the audience is laughing hysterically in unison. And I think that, that, you know, that's what most people think about when they think of these collective moments. But I think there's even more that I think I think there's more nuance than just those moments to talk about as, as we go on. When it comes to that collective moment, having with strangers in an audience, that's probably one of my favorite things in the world. And so I have experienced those moments hundreds of times. 
I mean, probably over 200 times have I had that, that kind of experience in a movie theater with an audience. And probably about 50 times, it was special, unique, would make a great story. I could tell you all 50 of them, just choose the 50. And they would all make the point and they would all, you know, be a good little story. So I was trying to think about which ones I wanted to, to talk about. And at first, keep it about the, the raucous cheering aspect. Hmm. And I picked two. One was obviously a moment in, it was a special moment and it was a moment in time when you saw the film. And the other one was one that I've seen maybe 12 times at the movie theaters. And, it, and that moment always has the same response. The first one was in the 80s with the group of guys that I worked at Video Archives with, us seeing Aliens the day it opened at the AFCO Embassy Cinema in Westwood. There was like four factors that made that really special. One, it's James Cameron's follow-up to The Terminator. Now, when you saw The Terminator, The Terminator was a complete surprise. You, when you were sitting in the movie theater on the day that opened, or the night that opened, you couldn't believe that an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie could be that good. You were just <laughs> gobsmacked. And so now this is him following it up and directors are usually really not that great at following up, you know, that first movie that takes you by surprise. So there's that. So he's going to follow it up. Also, it's a sequel to a great movie, Alien. Mm -hmm. And a true sequel. It's not part of a well-thought-out artistic trilogy. No, the first one did well. We're going to do it again. It's a, a true sequel. Mm -hmm. Three. The critical response was over the top. So the fourth aspect of it, which the three other aspects plugged into, was the audience anticipation of what you were going to see was through the roof. Uh, and because it is a sequel, we have an idea what we're going to see. It's not Terminator that's taking us by surprise. Even Raiders of the Lost Ark took you by surprise when you mm -hmm. saw it opening on that opening Friday. Uh, the Matrix took you by surprise. Die Hard took you by surprise. No, we, we know the alien. We get it. We know the mythology. So you show up at the AFCO... Embassy Cinema, Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood, and uh, all the video archives guys. It's not like we had to stand in line for like two different screenings before our screening. We had tickets, I think, to the 4.30 in the afternoon screening on Friday. But we're like, we're like, the line is going all the way down Wilshire Boulevard, and then it snakes around Westwood Boulevard. It goes past the parking lot where you park your cars. So it, it's like, you know, a human centipede is just like snaking all through <laughs> Westwood Village. And you're standing there for like 90 minutes. You're like, you're in this line 90 minutes before they let you in. And it's opening night. 
And it's opening gate. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon. And everybody's so excited. Not only that, James Cameron's there. And when I say he's there, he's not there doing a Q&A. He's not making a special appearance. He's not talking to the audience. No, this is his big night. This is the opening of his movie that he's killed himself for. He's stage managing the theatrical experience in the premier cinema in Los Angeles. He's there making sure that they're treating people well in line. He's making sure that the projection is right on. He's making sure that the, uh, the speakers are, are working right. The sound level is correct. You know, only 10% of us even know what he looks like. So, like, I recognize, oh, shit, that's fucking James Cameron. Um, he's, he, he's, he's stressing. It's like a market research training. He's stressing, you know, making sure that, like, the everything's right. Yeah. So then we're let into the theater. Jam-packed, asshole of elbows. <laughs> and then the movie starts. And it starts playing. And after saying those four, those four aspects that made the movie, uh, anticipation for the movie so exciting, the movie did the impossible. It exceeded our expectations. It was better than the critics said. They didn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> it was better than we could have hoped for. It was better than any sequel we had ever seen. Uh, it was one of the, you know, great popcorn movie experiences we had ever had. And we had, and by that time, I had had a lot of really great popcorn movie experiences. But the moment in the movie, during the screening, that was the most wow moment it's not when she gets in the uh, uh transformer uh forklift mm. thing says, <laughs> yeah yeah it's not when she gets in the power loader because by that point you, you know it's uh, you don't think you don't think ripley's gonna die at that point okay it's the end she's gonna she's gonna beat up the the, the alien yeah you're 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 kind of home free by that moment in time she's not gonna die at that point you know uh, it's like it's wrestlemania time by that point <laughs> <laughs> But when her and Newt are in that little isolation chamber and the face hugger is in there with them, the whole rest of the movie had been exciting. But for the first time, it, I wouldn't say it's terrifying because terrifying is, is too strong a word. That, that's a very special thing in cinema. But it was scary as shit. You, it was really, really scary. And you were, you were, you were you know, the audience was, was, was flipping out. And then when Reese shows up and blasts through the window and jumps through and, and goes through the window to save her, the audience went berserk. It was like people, they didn't think I'm going to jump up in the air now and pump my fist. They were propelled out of their seats. <laughs> because they were so relieved. It was just, uh, um, it, 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 to me, that was, that was the high point of the concert. 
of a of a perfect concert. That was the 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 high point of it. Uh, okay, so now so that's opening night of Aliens with a phenomena. You know, you had to be there. Yeah, I want to I want to just quickly be an Aliens sure. pedal. But you did something there which I thought was brilliant. Is that and maybe you did this deliberately. But you said Reese, as in Kyle Reese. Yes. His name's Hicks. But of course, it is Michael Bean. It may as well be uh, Kyle oh, Reese. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> you're right. It is Hicks. It's Hicks. Listen, it's it's it's, it's Mike, Michael Bean, basically. <laughs> it's Michael Bean. You're right. No, God, that's, 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 a, that's definitely an epic. I feel like such a dork to go, uh, excuse me, Mr. Tarantino. I think no, you're, you're 100% right. No, 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 I'm not. You did it. So everybody at home isn't saying, oh. Fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not as bad as misnaming Ripley, but it's up there. Um, okay, the other one, though, one of the things that, one of the reasons that I like doing revenge movies so much is revenge movies are one of the films that actually, wow, when you watch them and then, you know, you see these horrible bad guys do whatever they've done to the hero. And now it becomes time for the hero to come back and, and, and wipe these dudes out. Those are movies made for the audience to scream blood curling, you know, uh, sh- shouts towards the, uh, towards the screen. Those are movies made for exactly what we're talking about. And they get them. They can even be badly done and you still get caught up in the bloodlust and, and, and they can still be effective. It's probably one of the reasons why I use that as a plot line so much. Um, (laughs) My favorite revenge movie, though, of all time is John Flynn's Rolling Thunder. Mm. And the first time I saw Rolling Thunder was at, again, it was 1977. It was the day it opened, but I wasn't going to see Rolling Thunder. I saw it on a double feature with Enter the Dragon, no less. And so I was seeing Enter the Dragon. Uh, with my with my mom and her boyfriend and rolling thunder just happened to be the movie that was playing with it so the one i wanted to see was under the dragon so we saw under the dragon now comes this movie rolling thunder and then i'm watching that that's the movie that i talked about for the rest of my life rolling thunder and like the whole violent climax of that was just one of the most exciting moments i'd ever had in a in a movie theater but the thing about it was I love that movie. So it came out in 77. I love that movie so much. For the next seven to eight years in Los Angeles, whenever Rolling Thunder, you, know, you can't get it. It wasn't on HBO at that point in time. It wasn't, we didn't have HBO to, I didn't have any cable TV like that to begin with, but it wasn't on that. And, um, and you know, there's no video or anything. So, Whenever Rolling Thunder played theatrically in Los Angeles, I went to see it wherever it played. <laughs> and that, sometimes that was when I didn't even have a car. I'm taking a bus, three different buses to get to wherever theater I'm, 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 uh, it, it's playing at. Now, for the first three years of that, first three to four years of that, it was always at grindhouses, like in downtown Los Angeles or in Lakewood or in Long Beach, going to these 
scuzzy areas to watch it on a grindhouse double or triple feature. Like I remember one of them was like at the Palace Theater in uh, Long Beach. It was like one of the only times I've been to Long Beach on my own. In fact, the only time I've been to Long Beach on my own. <laughs> uh, uh, was this uh, uh, theater that specialized in triple features and it was The Howling, Chuck Norris's Good Guys Wear Black and Rolling Thunder. Wow. Then at a certain point, in the 80s, Rolling Thunder started showing at revival cinemas on Vietnam double features. So it was like The Boys in Company C and Rolling Thunder. It was Go Tell the Spartans and Rolling Thunder. It was uh, Who'll Stop the Rain and Rolling Thunder. One night, it was Apocalypse Now and Rolling Thunder. That was a long night. Um, <laughs> and like I said, whenever it played, I went and saw it. Now, since then, I once I got a 35 millimeter print of it, when I used to have my Austin film festivals, I've shown it twice in Austin, sold out audiences. I've had private screenings of the movie where I showed it to friends. We've screened it at the New Beverly probably at least seven times since I've taken over the New Beverly. Every single solitary screening of this movie, it doesn't matter if the place is filled to the rafters or there's six people in the theater, doesn't matter. It always gets the same response. When William Devane has tracked down the guys who killed his, his son and his wife, and he goes to Tom Lee Jones's house, and uh, they gotta keep it cool initially, so they just kinda have dinner, and the, the, the fam Tom Lee Jones's family is just chattering through the whole thing, and the two, two Vietnam vets are not really saying much. Then William Devane says, hey, John, can we have a, can I have a word with you? And so they go into Tom Lee Jones's bedroom. And they don't say hardly anything else. William Devane doesn't start with any preamble. Hey, look, here's the deal. Oh, look, I came here to talk to you about something. No, no, no nothing like that. William Devane just says, I found the guys who murdered my son. Then Barry DeVore's insane Boom, comes on and Tom Lee Jones takes a beat. One, two, three, I'll get my gear. <laughs> and the audience loses their shit. It doesn't matter if it was five people or 455 people. They all lose their mind at that moment. Wait, and then again, the action scene that follows lives up to that preamble. I think I, the first time I saw it, you showed it to me. Like, I, 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 I think the first time I watched it, maybe the only time I've ever seen it was at your house. No, that makes sense. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll show it, at, I'll show it, especially if you haven't seen it, I'll show it at the drop of a hat. <laughs> Did you lose your shit, Edgar? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, that's the thing. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because in a similar way, the thing that started this whole article um, was that I was watching Fatal Attraction with my girlfriend, Julia, at home, who had never seen the movie and didn't really know what it was about, which is like perfect because she's yeah, yeah. like the best. She's very easily she gets very involved and she's like screaming at the screen at points. And so I thought this is the perfect movie. And then I remembered <laughs> as I was watching it. The, the, I'd seen it in LA at the Egyptian, like more recently, but it was like a packed crowd. And the bit that made the audience go nuts, 
and it's not dissimilar to Rolling Thunder, it was like a quiet bit. It was also something where not much needed to be said. And actually the fact that it was downplayed is like the thing that kind of just sends people into overdrive. And it's the bit in Fatal Attraction when Anna Archer pushes back at Glenn Close on the phone and, and you know, mm. when, and basically Glenn Close uh, like sort of, um, uh, you know, when Michael Douglas calls Glenn Close and says, it's over, I've told my wife. And she says, I don't believe you. And Michael Douglas says, I'll put her on right now. And then Anna Archer, who's been kind of like cheated on and, yeah. uh, you know, like sort of threatened and uh, takes the phone. And then it's just in a mid shot and Adrian Lyon shoots it in like a sort of, in a wide shot even. It's not like a big... Mm-hmm. zoom in or anything and, and Ann Archer takes the phone and says uh, this is Beth Gallagher if you come near my family again I'll kill you do you understand and when I saw that with an audience they went fucking nuts and there's mm-hmm. this weird like cathartic roar and it's not dissimilar to the Rolling Thunder moment in terms of like the brilliance of it is it's like downplayed it's super yeah. deadpan it's taciturn you don't need to say too much and then you're just thinking oh my god it's fucking on <laughs> <laughs> Pick my two rockets. What are your rockets? Well, I um, I mean, I said I, I, it wasn't in the magazine, but I did a separate thing for Empire where I did talk about the thing that I was really, you know, like why I wanted to write the article as well is I sort of got sick of writing, reading these opinion pieces in like the trades and and the newspapers and even film magazines. People saying about like, oh, streaming is the future and like cinema is dead. And it always started to annoy me because I always had this feeling that like once people are in the industry and that goes for like filmmakers and, you know, film critics, there's a large percentage of people who never see a film with a paying audience ever again. They just go, they just go to industries industry screenings and listen you can have amazing festival screenings you can have amazing premieres it's not the same as watching it with a paying audience and so what i talked about in the empire piece is the the recent times where i've seen a movie and then i've gone back opening day because i want to then watch it with the crowd and that happened me and you actually and i think paul thomas anderson as well and maybe some other people like eli as well we all watch Gravity together, amazing screening. And then I was like, I'm going back opening day to watch that at the Chinese theater because I want to see it with an audience. And I did the same thing with Mad Max. I'd seen Mad Max like, I think three times, once to privately, then to do a Q&A with George and then to go to the premiere. And they're saying, I'm going back opening day because now I don't want to see it with the, with the crowd. And I did it again with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because you set up a private screening for me and the Last Night in Soho crew. It was the first script of yours since death proof that i had not read and i think at one point you'd said i should read it and then that never worked out and then i so was, and then i thought you know what? i just want to see it and i deliberately yeah. didn't read any reviews i knew there was something about the ending and i'd even formulated what i thought my ending was from the trailer <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and i was wrong i thought you know i'll tell you what i thought my theory was my theory was based on the shot of um uh, rick dalton jumping off the back of the pickup truck um, which is in the uh, episode of yeah, FBI, FBI, episode. FBI episode. So that's in the trailer, very, very cannily by the Sony trailer editors. Like that's in the trailer. <laughs> and I thought, oh, they must go back to Spahn Ranch and kind of commit revenge in a rolling thunder style. That was mm-hmm. my theory. So then in the movie, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but if you're listening no, to- at this point in time, you haven't seen it, you're also, a fucking asshole. All right, spoil it. <laughs> if you're listening to Quentin Tarantino on the Empire podcast uh, and you haven't seen Once Upon a Time Hollywood, stop now and come back. Because <laughs> like, I mean, I, anyway, but, my th- but when I saw the screening, 
And when it was the moment, not like the sort of bit where Rick, you know, is, is, is like smoking the joint or mm. gets high. It was the moment where Leonardo goes out with his jug of margarita to, to <laughs> berate, really angrily berate the Manson killers. And I was like, I'm watching this. And I just remember watching that scene. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And then you think they're going to kill Rick Dalton. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe that Rick Dalton is like angrily berating and calling him get, get your fucking filthy hippie car out of my drive. And, and that was the moment where I was thinking, I have no idea what's coming next. And then, so then we had this screening and obviously people were all floored, but I was like just saying, and I am buying opening night tickets to see that because I want to see with an audience who don't know that's coming. And of course it was like absolutely wild. And th those are the things. So I think there's those moments when I think back about the sort of the things, I think the things, and you said this about like Rolling Thunder, it would work with six people. It would work with like, many people. I mean, I'll, I'll try and give two very different ones. I mean, I really, I really feel like sort of, uh, you know, I talk, I talk about this in the, in the magazine, but I'll talk about it again because I actually got the, the shot wrong and, and this, and I had to rewatch the scene and I, I knew what it was, but I remember seeing Silence the Lambs on opening day when I was, uh, uh, how old I must've been like 17 when that film came out and it was not at my local cinema. It was a cinema that was like 20 miles away. So me and my friends all piled into a car to go and see it. And that was one of those films where I guess in this pre-internet age, like the trick, you know, the word was out, even though it's a best-selling book, there's still a lot of people who haven't read the book. The word was out that it was like, sort of like, you know, something really great. But then I just, just that weird feeling of the audience kind of cowering in their seats. And you can feel this kind of electricity in the room where people are like, sometimes vocally flipping out and sometimes you just get that feeling that people are like sinking back and i guess in those days like i don't really like it so much with stadium seating where it's on a rake no, yeah, yeah. it's better when it's flat because you can feel people's heads and you can see them cowering a recent experience i had of that is i went to see the french film raw mm -hmm. at the at the new art in los angeles and uh, if you've seen that movie, and I won't spoil yeah. it if you haven't, there's a scene in that where the uh, there was a lot of couples on dates, and then a lot of people cowering, squirming in their seats, kind of like like leaning into each other. And I was like, "What you're saying? This is fucking great." If you haven't seen uh, uh, Julia DeCorno, I think that's yeah. director. If you haven't seen that film, it's amazing. And there's one particular scene which will just any audience, be it ten people, be it the full house, will just be flipping out. So, and I feel that with Science of the Lambs. And then the thing that I thought was really interesting was the scene towards the end. It's after that amazing uh, bit of editing where, you know, they show two different houses and, you know, they do that trick where the FBI are at one house, but Clarice Starling is at the other. So there's that thing, which is great. But then it's the moment when Jodie Foster knows that Ted Levine is Buffalo Bill when she sees there's a cut, an insert shot of some thread and then the moth lands on it. And then Jodie Foster looks around and, and she knows and the audience knows. So the audience, even before the next bit, is just bugging out. And, yeah. it's, and it's, it's brilliant because it's like she's got him, but also it's Jodie Foster who's like five foot four. And you're thinking, <laughs> oh my God, she's going to fucking die. What is going to, you know, so... That's the thing is that even before you get into the next sequence, and Bong Joon-ho in the, in the magazine talked about the night vision bit, but I remember the bit immediately before is Jodie Foster realizing that she's standing opposite Buffalo Bill 
and the audience just having no idea what is about to go down and also terrified for your hero or heroine, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't think she can do this. And then somebody in the magazine mentioned another bit, uh, somebody in the magazine, a reader, I, uh, I'm sorry to say I don't have his name here, but um, it's, still, it's still a shower, even if I can't remember your name. He said <laughs> the thing that he remembered in that sequence is after Buffalo Bill is is dead. Oh no, it's no, it's before. It's before. It's when um, it's when Clarice uh, shouts down to what's the name of the actress who plays? Um, oh, the one in the pit. Yeah, I don't remember her name, but, but the one, the girl in the pit. Come back, yes. bitch. <laughs> but it's that line when Jodie Foster says, "FBI." you're safe <laughs> like and, and she doesn't sound entirely confident and then the and then this guy mentions and i remember this as well he said when when jody foster says fbi you're safe and you know that she doesn't have the situation controlled that people sort of laughed but it was like a nervous like horrified laugh of like oh god and that's an amazing <laughs> thing is that the, the hero is in the villain's lair and has found the victim but we still don't think she can do it. It's like, it's such a, so there's so many like those, those things. I mean, I'll give you a completely different, a completely different version of this. It's like. Brooke Smith, by the way. A Brooke Smith. I knew it was Smith, Brooke Smith. So um, the, um, there's funny, if you see behind the scenes photos, there's an amazing behind the scene photo of Brooke Smith and Ted Levine, like yes. all, all smiles, like sort of just hanging out on the set. And it's a very strange photo to look at. <laughs> A, a, a completely different version. Now, this is a thing where I'm loving a film, but the other people there are hating it. And this is also, these to me are memorable experiences. And as I say in the magazine, it's not always about a full house. You can have an amazing screening. And uh, Quentin, I know you can attest to this. You can have an amazing screening with six other people. I went to see um, the film Splice with Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody at the Chinese theater in the afternoon. And I think I was watching on my own and there's like 10 other people there. And uh, Quentin, have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So there's a moment in the movie where the film crosses the line and like this, this is the moment that makes the movie. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if I should spoil it on the podcast or not, but basically your hero in inverted commas has sex with the monster. And like, it's the, it's, it's the, it is the reason, it is the raison d'etre of that movie. However, when I saw it, like somebody in the audience got re like started to get really mad and stood up and went, fuck you. <laughs> like that. <laughs> and like, sort of like, I stood up in the cinema and said, fuck you at the screen. And at the end of the movie, like when it finished, like the same people stood up and said, that is the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. And this woman's going, fuck you. And I'm sitting there on my own clapping. <laughs> like, yeah. just like, and just thinking like, well done, Splice. Like, so if you split the room right down the middle and I fucking loved it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's, well that's, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about because it's not always like uh, 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 when it comes to getting an audience response. It's not always, um, not even just positive. It's not always uh, uh, raucous and, and, and cheering. It's a thing about watching a film with strangers. Now running a revival house, I can tell you, and this has been the case, I think for the last 40 years, and this used to be a staple on revival houses, whenever, there was a screening of Pasolini's Sala. Mm. There always is a violent moment in the audience. Every single screening of Sala for the last 40 years. 
there's always somebody who can't take it. Yeah. And has a, and has a violent reaction. I remember the first time I saw it was like, I don't know, 88 or 89. No, no, no. I think it was 90. It was 90. I was with my, my, uh, uh, old girlfriend Grace at the time. And it was at the new Beverly decades before I would own the place. And, um, I was at the New Beverly. The movie's been going on for a long, long time. And this woman stands up in the back of the theater and says, Pasolini was beaten to death on the streets of Rome, and I say good riddance. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow. That. <laughs> Holy shit. That happens at every screening of, of, of South. Unless it's uh, unless it's some uh, 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 Pasolini film uh, uh, film sponsored uh, uh, retrospective, where it's all package wrapped. But if it's actually yeah. just a regular screening, even at a revival house where people don't exactly know what they're buying a ticket to see, there always is. Every time we screen, there's always is a violent reaction at some point in the movie. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can imagine that. I, I've only ever watched uh, Salo at home, but I, I remember that. Then you haven't seen it. No, <laughs> you need, no, I know, I you know. need to watch it with forty <laughs> people enduring it with you. I know. I mean, I will, I will say this is that like I watched, I projected it at home, but I did. When people say to me, like you know, people say like, what film could you not? watch you've watched once but you'll never watch again and i i think about that because i remember i was watching i was watching salo and i actually mm. stopped it halfway through and went outside to have what i can only describe as a daylight break i was mm. like i'm just gonna go and stand out in the sun for 15 minutes before i finish that movie i'm not saying you can see it again i'm saying you threw away your one chance at I know, I know, I know. It was, I, I think, you know, if it had been, I think maybe at the point that I had that, you know, like, I mean, there's, I'm trying to think of something else like that, where like there's been that kind of like really violent response to something. I mean, no, yeah, normally, normally it's an audience chortling at a movie. Yeah, yeah. It's them, it's, it's them turning against it, usually where they're laughing at it or saying, this is bullshit but not where they're turning angry at the film and fighting back. I presume that woman then walked out. I'm guessing did she say and watch the rest of the, of the movie? Oh, no, no, she, oh, no, of course, no, she walked out. <laughs> no, it was a party, it was a parting shot as she walked out the door. <laughs> Maybe that's her thing. Maybe she does that at different screenings. Like that could be, she's so angry about it. She goes, that's her turn. No, I mean, no, it's actually, it's, it's the power of that movie that it actually, in every screen, yeah, it yeah. gets maybe not as perfectly worded <laughs> as her, all right, but in every screening, it gets some sort of thing. It's not like, oh, I'm, it's not like, okay, I've had enough of this and I'm going to leave. Yeah. People are <laughs> shouting as they leave. <laughs> <laughs> they are fighting back at the movie. That's amazing. So let me let me ask you both this uh, as well as as guys who write your own movies. Are you aware 
of anticipating audience reactions when you're writing moments. You know, Edgar, for example, I'm thinking of, you know, Adam Buxton's head being crushed in hot fuzz or Quentin, the last 10 minutes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Are you anticipating moments like that? Not people yelling, (laughs) yelling angrily at the screen, but applauding and getting caught up in the movie. I mean, I think those things where you kind of would hope that would happen. I mean, I would think in, in Hot Fuzz, like, I mean, if if you don't get a reaction from Adam Buxton's head being crushed by a, a falling spire, then you've done something wrong. <laughs> like, but I think with, <laughs> with, with, with I think the thing and I mentioned this in the article as well in Hot Fuzz, it was really like the granny kick moment where like we knew that was like sort of like the bit where the movie was going to sort of tip over into kind of overdrive. But when I shot it, I didn't really have the coverage I wanted. I think I was we ran out of time or the sun went down as it usually does. Uh, um, and so I actually went back to shoot extra inserts before doing a test screening. It's the only time I've ever done it. I managed to convince Eric Fellner to let me do uh, additional photography before we did a test screening. Cause I was like, this granny kick is like, it's going to be the bit, but I need this extra shot. And the extra shot I needed was literally Jackie Chan style. Like, you know, Jackie Chan, they do the sort of the shoe on a stick. Like put oh, a yeah. shoe on a stick and go bang right in the face. So I needed a shot literally of a shoe going into this actress's face and we shot it. And then I remember like, I think Eric Fellner and Naira thought I'd gone mad. It's like, why Edgar's never going to stop shooting this movie. But then we did the, we, we test screened it in High Wycombe. And I talked about this in the magazine. We test screened it in High Wycombe and that people were already really into it. But at that point when Simon, peg like drop kicks the granny people went so nuts and you couldn't hear the next scene and i i've never really had this experience of like such a high scoring movie but also eric turning to me and just saying eric's very sort of deadpan and inscrutable eric fellner the audience is going crazy just turns to me goes it's a hit <laughs> like, and like I, i've never had that experience again where like the producer has so kind of just like just um confidently said it's a hit like that and then afterwards and it's the only time i've ever done a test screening where the studio and everybody said lock it lock it done you know but uh i think yeah so obviously you anticipate those things because you're hoping like if i mean it's interesting we talked to like James Cameron about the power loader moment in Aliens. And I said, you've got to be pretty confident that that's going to be like, a, 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 you know, like a cheer from the Raffles moment because it's so theatrical. Doosh, doosh, doosh. She's walking up to camera. And, and he said, I don't know if you read in the, in the piece, James Cameron said he didn't see that moment with an audience until premiere night because Aliens was like literally like, you know, wet in the gate when they finished it. They finished it so close to the wire. They never had a test screening. They finished it. And he saw that for the first time with Fox or the executives on premiere night when people go bananas. And he said that it wasn't until that night that Fox even had confidence in the movie. So I kind of find that those things, I mean, yeah, you definitely write those things hoping that they'll work out. And, and, Sometimes there's things that surprise you that there's like a subtle joke that gets a big laugh. Like I'd say in Shaun of the Dead, the subtlest joke that would like bring the house down that maybe when you wrote it in the script or even maybe it isn't even written in the script. It's just a stage direction. I'd say the bit in Shaun of the Dead is when Nick Frost winds on the fun camera. And I remember (laughs) it's like when he's kind of like Mary has fallen on the spike and he winds on the fun camera to take another shot. Yeah. Now, the thing is that when we had the test screening of that, 
the, the, the sound effect was quite quiet and it didn't really get a response. And I said, I said, hey, we should make that fun camera wind on sound extra loud. Next time we show it, massive laugh. And so those are the things that you, I wouldn't say when I was writing the script saying, hey, when he winds the fun camera on, the audience is going to lose it. <laughs> like, so those are things that you can only do by just trying things out. Well, in, in, like in my case, I spent a whole career doing set pieces that either the audience is going to lose their shit or, or the movie doesn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where it's like, no, it's the difference between success or abject failure. You know, they're either really into it or they're not. And and I have sequences like that in all nine of my movies. So it's like, a, a, um, so that's, I'm trying to, it's what I do. <laughs> it's actually what I do is, is uh, uh, what we're talking about. I was trying to think of what, considering that's what I do and considering I have a lot of examples of, of, of you know, of, of it working out you know, exactly the yeah. way I wanted it. And and to me, and look, just like Edgar, yeah, obviously there's like a, a, a line here or a line there that, oh, that gets a bigger response than I thought, or this doesn't get the laugh I thought it was going to get. Uh, and there's stuff that, that surprises you. But to me, these set pieces, delivering them like a symphony, it's, it's seeing it in advance and playing the audience exactly like a fiddle. That makes it, that, that is the glory. I mean, if, if you're going, if you're a conductor and you're gonna do the William Tell Overture, <laughs> you, you better, you're gonna, you gotta deliver and you've gotta bring the audience to an, an emotional pitch uh, at the time that you do it. If you're doing Flight of the Bumblebee, you wanna get them at a certain place. And I don't have an orchestra. I've made the movie and uh, the audience is my orchestra. Um, so having said that, and being pretty happy with every one of my films when it came to that, when it came to those moments, I have three favorite moments like that that, that, that stand out. One of them, I'll, I'll say it uh, because it, it mirrors Edgar's, because it was, uh, um, I've seen it work, I've seen the movie about 35 times with an audience all over the world, and I saw it work every time. However, the first time I saw it with a, with a, Market research screening was the one I'll remember the most because it was the first time that we saw how effective it was. Mm-hmm. Is the baghead scene in Django and Chain? Oh, yeah, 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 arguing yeah. about okay. the bags. That is one of, and I've seen it like I said thirty-five times. That that's as much of hysterical laughter as I've ever heard in any screening of any movie, uh, and, <laughs> and it happens all over the world. That was everyone's favorite scene in the script. Amy Pascal, half the reason she wanted to make the movie at Columbia was because of that scene. But it was one of those scenes that it was such a hit on the page. I was a little, I started getting intimidated about would it be that good in the movie? Has, does everyone love it so much on the page? Is it gonna uh, lose something in the translation? Once I get a bunch of uh, actors playing the role, because it's not it's not based on one performance. It's a whole lot of people. Yeah. And you know, and it happens in a weird part of the movie. And so we shoot the scene, and forget about the fact that it's a long 
comedy sequence. It's like five, it's a five minute non sequitur in a movie that's already really long. So me and uh, my editor, Fred, we cut the movie together we cut that sequence together and we're really happy with it. Oh, wow. This, wow. This is, this is really funny. This is really good. This is exactly what I wanted. And so an interviewer would come and interview me and I would leave the editing room and, and uh, you know, have lunch with them and talk about something. And then I, and I go, hey, you want to see a scene from the movie? You want to see, you want to come back in the editing room and just show you a couple of things? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. Or uh, a, a, a director or somebody would visit. And so we had like four different times where somebody came by to visit for whatever reason and we were going to show them something. So we would bring out that scene and show it to them. And it never got the response we thought it should get. And it just like they didn't really know what the hell they were watching. It was almost like a, 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 a what's his head in the prestige talks about when he see when Christian Bale does a match trick, because he doesn't even do it right. Right, right, right. <laughs> the audience doesn't even realize what a good trick it is. Because he doesn't do it right, but it's a great trick. They didn't really know what they, they, they couldn't process what they were seeing. So we had just had nothing but uh, uh, dispiriting responses when it came to uh, that sequence. So when it came time to actually show the Weinstein Company and Sony the movie for the first time on an Avid, we decided to take that scene out. And so we showed it to them without that scene. And then mm-hmm. afterwards, Amy Pesco was like, what the fuck happened to the backhead scene? I go, well, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, I wanted you to see the movie without it. So you would know that we don't need it. We don't need it. Okay, so I wanted you to see the movie without it. Now, let's put it back in for the first market research screen. Let's see what the audience responds, and then from that point on, we'll you know we'll figure out what we'll, we'll we'll figure out what to do once we hear the audience response to it. Because I wasn't that confident that it was going to get the greatest response. Because I just saw it one person at a time. Then we have the first market research screen, and the entire theater just breaks into laughter for five minutes straight. Like the entire, brings the entire house down. And right when they needed to be brought down, it's a heavy subject. And so it was like, okay, well, I guess, I guess this scene is going in the movie. It's just about as effective as any scene I've ever done. I guess that's the thing. It like it, it works because of the because of the buildup or because of the tone of what precedes it. No, uh, exactly. Well, that's exactly it. It was asking too much. It's not funny or dark. All right. So it was asking too much to present it as its own little comedy bit. Yeah, yeah. But then you know, okay, okay. So now, so now, that's a sequence where it's like, okay, it's something funny. The audience laughs. So there's cause and effect. You're not guessing is the scene working or not because you can tell it's a comedy sequence and the entire theater is laughing hysterically. You can tell it's working. There's there's no guesswork going on there. But the most rewarding audience response where it is, it's less cause and effect. It's more, 
all of a sudden the mood in the theater changes. All of a sudden the atmosphere changes. All of a sudden the air in the theater changes. And you know the entire audience has changed, but not because they're screaming and telling you. They're not telling you. You feel it. You feel it from everybody. And to me, that's that's just, there's a depth to that. There's a meaning to that. All right. Or the, the entire room has changed. And, um, and so, look, when it comes to getting the audience to respond the way I want them to respond, yeah, okay, the, the end of, of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yeah, really, really does that. And it does it in, like, in, the, in the kind of way that I like. It's subversion on a massive level. I've got you laughing hysterically at something horrifically violent. All right, so naturally, I'm going to love that. That's, that's terrific. All right, I'm very proud of that. Diversion uh, uh, um, on a massive level is always the, the goal. But the one, but the moment in the movie that's even more rewarding, and I, I think might be, it's one of the best things that you know me and my team have ever accomplished, is Cliff going to Spawn Ranch. Hmm. And. Um, it can't possibly work as well if you see the movie a second time because you know it's going to happen. But when you watch the movie, with, even by yourself, but when you watch the movie with an audience the first time, and this is a long sequence too, it achieves something that I think is very difficult to achieve in a movie. It, it, it achieves terror. The audience is terrified for Cliff. And the air in the theater changes. Everyone becomes riveted. And, and they're genuinely afraid. And I think the difference between, there's a difference between suspense and terror. And on one hand, it's razor thin. On the other hand, it's as wide as the Grand Canyon. Suspense is what's going to happen. Terror is you're afraid you know exactly what's going to happen and you don't want to see it. Yeah, yeah. You do not want to see what you think is going to happen and you think the worst. And, you are, and you're afraid you're right. And if you care about the character, it's even worse. But there's a manipulation in that because, okay, just you, you using the Silence of the Lambs example. That sequence is magnificent. I will push back on one aspect of it, though. I've seen some movies before. I did not think Jodie Foster was going to die. Hmm. At that point in the movie, I would have been I would have been surprised if it ended with Buffalo Bill killing Jodie Foster. <laughs> the end. <laughs> No, I've seen too many movies to think that that was actually going to happen. Now, I was caught up in the moment, but I still have a movie brain going on. Are you saying? Are you saying that it would be a better film if the film ended with Buffalo Bill wearing Jodie Foster? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I'm, 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 I'm using it. I'm using it to go back to Once Upon a Time in in, in Hollywood because one of the reasons that that scene works so effectively is because Cliff could die. Mm -hmm. Narratively, movie-wise, in every way, shape, and form, 
he could die in that sequence. I mean, in fact, not only could he die in that sequence, dramatically, it might even make sense that he dies in that sequence. And that was something I learned a long, long time ago when um, me and a bunch of friends saw a movie that people don't talk about that much, uh, that Stephen King werewolf movie, Silver Bullets. Mm. And I learned a big lesson, a storytelling lesson when I watched that film. Because in that movie, uh, Gary, uh, it's like Gary Busey is the uncle of these kids and Corey Haim is, is, is a 12 year old boy in it. And then there's a, a young girl in it. And, Car- and Corey Haim is playing a, a little boy in a, um, a wheelchair. And there's like a 13 year old girl and she's narrating the story from an older age. And Gary Busey is like as funny and charming as you could ever hope. It's pre-motorcycle accident. And he's, uh, uh, he's, he's completely funny and completely charming. And then it comes to big climax where like the three of them have to fight the werewolf and the werewolf is generally scary in, in this movie. Now, you know, you, you've fallen in love with Gary Busey by, by this point in time in the film. You know they're not going to kill the little boy in the wheelchair. And they're not going to kill the little girl because she's narrating the story at an older age. They could kill Gary Busey. Gary Busey could die at the end. And you love him. And so you're so afraid for Gary Busey to die that you're just... Uh, your, your heart is in your throat. And I learned that dramatically that night. I realized why I was so terrified for Gary Busey because dramatically they could have killed him where they can't kill the other ones. And that's one of the things about that sequence in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Cliff could die. Like I said, not only could he die, it would make dramatic sense for him to die. It's interesting. There's a thing that it's not in the magazine because there wasn't room for it, but we talked to Robert Zemeckis on the phone and he mentioned like a a bit from a film, that a very famous film, but a bit that nobody mentions. And he saw it opening night or, you know, when it first came out. So Robert Zemeckis was talking about Psycho and he saw it when it first came out. And he said the bit that nobody talks about, because obviously the film is so well known now that it's, it's very difficult to go into Psycho without may you know mm-hmm. especially in this day and age without maybe knowing the twist of what's going to happen but oh you know the shower scene is so famous it's like as you know li- it literally became a piece of art in a gallery <laughs> like um, <laughs> um but he said the thing he goes when i saw, he saw it the first time the bit that sent people like crazy um because they're already terrified and they've already seen what's happened to janet lee is towards the end of the movie before the twist is revealed that the audience knows that like Anthony Perkins is back in the motel. Vera Miles is inside the house trying to find out where her sister is. And the audience also knows that Mrs. Bates, whether she's alive or not, but Mrs. Bates is in the basement. But at this point in the movie, you think Mrs. Bates is alive. But he said the thing that drove the audience crazy is when Anthony Perkins is coming back up the steps and Vera Miles, not knowing about where Mrs. Bates is, decides to hide in the basement. 
And he said, that is the moment when people started really screaming at the screen. No, don't go down there. Like now, obviously in, in this day and age where like maybe like the, the twist of psycho are difficult to kind of keep bottled, but imagine watching it with a first night audience who don't know what's coming next, that that's the bit he said, that's the bit that drove people insane. And obviously people have talked about psycho forever but nobody ever really mentions that bit and it's like no, very- that, that makes sense and also there's actually another bit in psycho that actually is closer to something i also wanted to talk about i think there's one moment in a in a movie made recently that deserves to be in this discussion And I think it's a profound, profound audience moment. And there's a a similar bit like that in Psycho. In Psycho, there's the moment where Anthony Perkins is disposing of the car. Mm. And he dumps it in the lake. And it's sinking and it's sinking. And then it stops. And then you see the look on his face. Okay. Just me describing it, that's a nice bit unto itself. The profound part of it is the audience wants the car to sink. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's eating a snack as well, isn't he? Chewing on a yes. nut or something? He's yeah. eating a snack, but you, you want him to get away with it. You don't want it to stay there. You don't want him to get caught by the cops. You, want, you are willing the car to go down in the water. You're, you're worried for him. You're worried for Norman Bates at that moment. You want him to get away with it. You want him to dispose of the dead body of the heroine of your film. <laughs> and so um, one of my uh, uh, favorite quotes I ever heard from a director was in the 80s in Filmmaker Magazine, uh, uh, Clive Barker did an interview. It was like promoting getting ready for Nightbreed to come out. Now, Nightbreed is not that great and, and, and Lord of Illusion isn't that great. But for two seconds, when he came out with Hellraiser, it looked like Clive Barker as a director was going to be the man. And uh, speaking of Salo, he even said, he goes, oh, one of the things people said about Hellraiser, it seems as if Hammer, if, if Hammer made Salo, it would be Hellraiser. <laughs> Actually not the worst person for describing Hellraiser. Um, but the thing is, um, he's doing an interview in Filmmaker Magazine. And I thought Hellraiser, Hellraiser was damn impressive. But what was impressive about it was like, one, it worked as a movie, and two, it was so incredibly fucked up. I mean, that was, it was, and this is the age when nothing was fucked up. It was great that it was that fucked up. And all the SM imagery in the fucking 80s, my God, it was amazing. And so he was talking about uh, working under the restrictions of trying to make a studio film in the 80s. And he goes, well, you know, part of it just makes you want to just say, fuck it, I'm out of here, I'll just make movies in Europe. But then, if I do that, and David Lynch does that, and Paul Verhoeven does that, then mediocrity wins. And then he says to Sunline, look, 
Hellraiser opened up in 800 theaters back when that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Hellraiser opened up in 800 theaters. That's subversion on a massive level. One of my favorite quotes in movies, and I've tried to live up to that, that credo ever since. Okay, so now, subversion on a massive level. Audience response, cause and effect on the screen, feeling the atmosphere in the theater change, getting to where you're going as far as the movie is concerned. We talked about all these things. Mm -hmm. The talk show sequence in The Joker mm. encompasses all of these things on a profound, a profound level. I, a level that I think is over most viewers' heads, frankly, to tell you the truth. I'm watching The Joker in the theater for the first time. I'm liking the movie well enough. I'm, I'm liking it. I'm having a little bit of a conversation in my head, though, as I'm watching the movie. I'm like, okay, is this where we live now? Where we just take great movies from the 70s uh, and redo them as pop cultural artifacts? So uh, Taxi Driver is the Joker. Apocalypse Now is Ad Astra. I mean, every, every, is everything some weird pop culture artifact of, of, a, of, a, of a challenging movie from another mm -hmm. time? On the bad side of Joker, I would say through most of it, well, it's a little one note. On the good side, well, the movie actually moves pretty quick, especially for like a forced perspective, oppressive movie like that. The movie actually tells its story pretty, pretty efficiently. Then it gets to the talk show scene. And you feel the entire atmosphere in the theater change. It's not suspense. It's beyond suspense. They are riveted. It's, it's everybody is completely plugged in. I've talked to people, if you saw this movie on an airplane, if you watched this movie streaming, if you watched this movie on DVD, you didn't fucking see the movie. <laughs> you, you got a hand job <laughs> as opposed to having great sex. You got a hand job as opposed to a threesome. <laughs> hey, don't knock hand jobs. <laughs> no, actually, watching Joker by yourself is a pretty good hand job. All right, it's not a threesome. The thing is, but the subversion on a massive level, the thing that's profound is this: is it's not just suspenseful. It's not just riveting and exciting. The director subverts the audience because the Joker's a fucking nut. The guy's a fucking nut. Robert De Niro's talk show character is not a, a movie villain. He seems like an asshole, but he's not any more of an asshole than David Letterman. I mean, you know, he's just an asshole comedian uh, a talk show guy. He's like He's an asshole David Letterman type. He's not a movie villain. He's not, doesn't deserve to die. He hasn't, you know, he's, he, he's just an asshole. And people like asshole comedians. Yet, while, you, while the audience in the movie theater is watching The Joker, they want him to kill Robert De Niro. 
<laughs> they want him to take that gun and stick it in his eye and blow the back of his fucking head off. And if the Joker didn't kill him, you would be pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> that is subversion on a massive level. They got the audience to think like a fucking lunatic and to want something that they would never. And they will and they will lie about it. They will say, no, I did it. And they're fucking liars. They did. <laughs> and Edgar, is that something that you've ever had to deal with in, in your career? Manipulating that kind of subversion? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it, I mean, I the honest answer is I would fucking hope so. But I, the fact that I can't think of any, I mean, you could analyze. That's what the, you know, going back to Psycho. That's what's so extraordinary about the film is that you you he actually manages to shift your kind of like sympathies like three times. Mm-hmm. Like then you go back to Vera Miles and then you're kind of rooting for her to find out what happened to her sister. But you also have sympathy for Anthony Perkins, who's the fucking killer. So I mean I'm I don't never know. on Vera Miles side. <laughs> <laughs> When she's actually made the bad guy in Psycho 2, I'm all down with that. <laughs> I watched Psycho 2 again the other day, actually. Psycho 2 is damn good. It's a good movie. It's also, you know, it's... it's. Uh, I'm a big Richard Franklin fan. I'm a huge, huge Richard Franklin. They just re-released... Um, there's a new uh, Blu-ray of Link I just saw that they just brought out, which I've only... Oh, yes. cool. Which I've only ever seen. night. <laughs> I don't, I, Chris, I don't know the answer to your question. I mean, maybe if, if I have done something like that, I, 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 I don't remember it. Like, I, I'm not sure that I have, to be honest. But when Quentin was talking about, you know, the idea of, of terror and being terrified for a character, I, I, I immediately thought of Ed in Shaun of the Dead. Because oh, yeah. there's a character who goes in the last, the last 20 minutes and you think pretty much Shaun's going to be okay, but Ed is the one that you're really, really worried for. And you guys go ahead and kill him as well. Yes, definitely people are upset by that. And that's right in terms of, I think, to be honest, I think the other thing I'd, no, you know what? I'd say that, but I'd say the thing, I think actually the sort of the boldest thing we did was killing Simon's mum because it's Penelope Wilton, who's so nice and so charming (laughs) right through to the end. And I remember even when I suggested that to Simon, when we were writing, Simon reacted as if I was genuinely suggesting that I, we kill his mother. <laughs> so <laughs> Simon got upset at the idea that I said Sean's mum should die. And he was like, no, 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 no. Now, when we played the scene, Simon, I think, really like he is like his performance in that is great. And he's really conjuring up like he's thinking about what if my own mother was dead? The other thing about that scene, this is something that's like, so I think people find that in the movie truly upsetting. And I've even heard some people, I heard one person say that they didn't like the movie because they thought the mum scene was too dark. And I was like, ah, that's the scene that makes the movie for me, the mum dying. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I would, that's, your, that's your sequence. But here's a funny thing about the making of the film. that This isn't in the finished film, but it is a funny thing. That scene where Penelope Wilton dies and comes back as a zombie happened to be her last day on the movie. So we shoot Penelope Wilton's death scene, which is which is really quite distressing because Penelope Wilton is so nice and such a charming <laughs> actress. And now like she's dying on screen. She had to die because it's like a low budget movie. She dies and then she's immediately whisked off into <laughs> makeup to get her zombie makeup on. 
then again, because we're up against it, we haven't got a lot of time to shoot that film. Like, so she dies and then she's off that. Penelope's going to make up. So when we shoot something else that without her or maybe like the back of a double set or something, then Penelope Wilton comes back in her makeup, which is fucking terrifying. It's the first time any of us have seen Penelope Wilton as a zombie. She does her kind of like setups that are in the movie. And then Penelope Wilton is picture wrapped. And like me and Simon never see her again for the rest of the shoot. And it was literally like Penelope Wilton had died. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and it was genuinely upsetting because, you know, sometimes on movies, you know, this Quentin is that like just when somebody goes, you might have to run off and shoot a whole other scene and you don't have time to go and say goodbye to Penelope Wilton. I think we gave her a round of applause, but she was gone. But it was that thing of like she wasn't in the rest of the schedule. This actress who'd been with us for weeks is now gone. No, yeah. I don't think I saw her again until we did ADR, but it was it was like it was like Sean's mum had really died. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that way. So to answer your question, I would say yes, Ed dying because everybody loves Ed and when he gets bit, you're like, no. But I'd say before that, it's actually killing Penelope Wilton. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would say for, for a, a film as funny as, as Shaun of the Dead to, to play the real emotions yeah. of that scene and to actually play it not for last, but to play it for real and to like feel that their 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 uh, their whole relationship play out. No, that that you know that is that is subversion because that you know, because because there's a silly aspect to Shaun of the Dead. So to actually go for that real inside of a, a film that could be labeled silly is you know that's subversion on a massive level. You know what? You know what scene? It didn't inspire that, but a scene that I always a, a small scene in a in a very favorite movie. I was always really struck by, which I think is like, again, a very famous film, a film that I have probably talked about more than any other film, but not a scene that everybody talks about. Is in American Wealth in London. The scene that really gets me is the scene where David Norton is considering committing suicide and calls his family to tell them he loves them. But yeah. he doesn't get hold of his parents, gets hold of his kid sister, who thinks he's goofing around. And that scene is played so beautifully. And like John Landis just shoots it in this kind of slow sort of dolly shot. And it's like a really sweet scene. And it's, it's made sadder by the fact that David Norton can't accomplish what he wants to do, is tell mm. his mum and dad he loves them and has to give the message through the sister who thinks he's being like, what do you, you know, he thinks he's being a goofball. That scene mm -hmm. is brilliant. And that's yeah. those are the things where sort of like a, a, a bit of sudden unexpected death, depth, sorry, a bit of sudden unexpected depth in like a comedy horror <laughs> is something that you're, I mean, unexpected deaths are good too, but it's that bit where you're thinking, <laughs> oh my God, like my yeah. heart is breaking. Hey, I, 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 had one other, I had one other example, um, uh, not so much in this disturbing aspect, but as far as a, an audience reaction that I thought was, extremely unique. And again, I, it was when I was a young man, I saw it and my reaction to it blew me away so much. I saw the film three other times at the theater, well, no, two other times during its initial run to see if the audience would respond the same way. And they responded the same way every time. And then I didn't watch the film with an audience again until I screened it at the Alamo Draft House 25 years later. And they reacted the exact same way again, 25 years later. It is the, um, it's not really a slasher film, but the, uh, the horror film, Hell Night with ah. Linda Blair. Okay, so in that movie, 
It's the whole idea is uh, uh, these kids are trying to get into a soror uh, fraternity sorority during Halloween night. They're all dressed up in costumes, have to uh, spend the night in this, uh, in this like uh, rumored haunted house in the neighborhood. And it's a really well done movie directed by Tom DeSimone, who started out directing gay porn films. And uh, it's got a good cast, Lynn Blair, Peter Barton. Uh, almost everything about the movie actually works really, really well. Uh, I really like Kevin Brophy's story of uh, the, the, the fucked up family in it. It's, it's got a really good monologue. But the moment that got a response from the audience that to me is unique to this day, I've never seen this happened before. Earlier in the film, Peter Barton and Linda Blair are talking to each other and they're getting to know each other. And Peter Barton's a rich kid. And Linda Blair is from the poor side of town. And she's describing, she's, oh, well, you know, uh, well, my dad was a mechanic and, you know, he owns a garage. And so I was taught to be a mechanic. I, he taught me how to fix cars. And so, like, when she worked at some version of tune-up masters, you know, you know, fixing, you know, in a muffler shop or something. So uh, she put herself through school by making money as a mechanic. And it's like, you know, just a little backstory, and it you know, makes make sense. So she's a girl from the poor side of town. She had to work her way through this college situation that she's in. Peter Barton didn't. Okay, now it's the end of the movie, and the, and the crazy, wild, inbred killer is, is after her. And she finally gets out of the house, and he's lumbering after her. And then there's a car that Vincent Van Patten had been driving is like, is, is abandoned. It's right there. And she gets in the car. She's going to drive it through the gate. And she gets in the car and naturally it's a horror film at the end of the film. Naturally it doesn't start. She's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the killer's getting closer and closer and closer and closer. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, she gets out of the car and she pops the hood. <laughs> and she starts fucking with things. <laughs> and there's like this, huh? Thought in the audience. And then literally everybody, not, not, not every single person in the theater, but at least three people in every single screening at the exact same time at different parts of the theater say, she's a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a fun moment of audience interaction. And I go, and I thought it was a great storytelling thing and a great payoff. I saw it twice more during a theatrical run to see if that would happen. And it happened in every scandal screening. <laughs> and then 25 years later, watching it at the Alamo Draft House, it happened again. <laughs> uh, oh, I wonder if it's the same woman who was shouting out, Pasolini was on the streets of Rome, just going around movies, shouting things <laughs> to the screen. Uh, guys, I know you want to talk about... Um, British films in particular. We'll get that in a second. I just want to ask, because I miss the hell out of cinema, and this isn't helping, quite frankly. It's making me really want to be in the cinema. What is it about the cinematic experience? Is it is it something as, as simple as that, that communal mindset of being next to people when you're all experiencing the same thing? Is that why it's so special? Well, the thing, I mean, here's the thing, is I watched a ton of movies. Like, uh, right now, I'm on the International Film Committee 
you know, for the Academy. So I'm watching like tons of international films from around the world. And it, it's just a very simple thing because I'm usually watching them on my own. Like, I just want to talk to somebody about it afterwards. <laughs> and they're just watching things at home. And there's like nobody, I have to like literally wait until LA wakes up to sort of text somebody else who might have seen the same thing saying, hey, I just watched that. And it's like, aside from like, listen, aside from the audience, I mean, I think the magazine and what we've said already perfectly expresses is that w- what you're really missing is a communal experience of strangers watching a film, not just the friends you go with. I mean, I, you know, like going to see aliens with all your friends on a, on opening night is an amazing experience. And then there's just the reaction of the other people around you that you don't know. I mean, Chris Evans talks about it in the magazine. That I thought it was really, he, he said after opening out at the matrix, strangers were hugging each other in the lobby because <laughs> <laughs> they'd all experienced the same thing. But uh, beside that, it's also the thing of like talking about the movie with your friends afterwards. I miss being in a room with strangers. I miss the audience. I also miss like standing, standing outside the New Beverly talking about the movie, having a coffee with people and saying like, oh my God, you know, like needing to sort of unpack what you've just seen. Like there's all of those kind of social aspects to it beyond just the audience interaction is like not the same when like, you know, kind of uh, Netflix, uh, you're watching a film and then it finishes and then it immediately goes to the intro- opening credits of Bridgerton. It's like, I don't want to watch Bridgerton. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished watching the Charlie Kaufman film. I don't want to watch Bridgerton right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have to die for the remote control so quickly. You have to jump on it. That, you have to anticipate I that s- moment. I say that on record. I want to say this is like sort of like all of those platforms that cut off the credits. Fuck you. Play yeah, the yeah. fucking credits. What it should be, subvert it have a button that says skip credits. Don't like make you fumble for the remote to watch the end credits of a movie. It's bullshit. I couldn't agree more. Absolute I, bullshit. I told, I told Ted Saranis that personally. Yes. I mean, it's, I, I said that to like, you get sent all these Netflix things for awards and I was watching Mank and I wanted to see who an actor was and I literally couldn't watch the credits because it kept bumping me out. And I just thought after doing it five times, I was like, ah, fuck it. And I was like so annoyed. I think this is the only way to watch this movie. It's not like you can even get the Blu-ray and watch it. It's like sort of like, so you've really got an awards contender where you want people to vote. And I'm really ranting now, but you really want people to vote for people in the technical categories. And yet you're not going to play them the credits. So you know what the names are? It's bullshit. (laughs) It's disrespectful at best and twattish at worst. Fuck well, well, well said, Chris. Well, well said. Disrespectful at best. When we're, whilst we're on that, no, the other one that's really annoying is like on Amazon and I think on iTunes as well, is when if a movie, especially older movies that don't have an end credit crawl, that like as you're getting to the final seconds of a movie, like I was watching. Um, oh, the, the little things popping up? Yes. So I was watching uh, Agnes Varda's um, Cleo from Five to Seven, which was on, I think I must have watched it on, on Apple maybe, but like that film has no end credits and it's the final moments of the movie. And as the final moments of the movie are happening, it's popping up. Do you want to watch? Then like, no, I don't want to watch Wonder Woman next. I want to watch the end of Cleo from Five to Seven. They're <laughs> <laughs> so, like, listen, we're, we're on the Empire podcast. Like we, we can collectively say, Stream platforms that don't play the credits. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> what did Ted Sarandos say, Quentin, when you when you? Nah, said he that just kind of—he just 
he winced. He knew I was right, but that's their model. I mean, he didn't. He didn't defend it. He just looked. He looked embarrassed. But you know, nothing's gonna yeah. change. Fil- films cannot be treated like it's a sort of like a, a you know a packet of sweets. Actually, actually the, the 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 better thing that I embarrassed him about is I asked him, "How come there's not more '70s movies?" And I go, "Let me put it like this." I looked up Burt Reynolds. And you only had four Burt Reynolds movies, and two of them were the longest yard. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a problem that uh, all the streamers have. When Sean Connery died, I wanted to go on a massive Sean Connery oh, tear. Apple has a lot of 70s, 60s, and 50s stuff. Yeah, Apple, Apple yeah, but also you have to pay for them. You have to buy them individually. But yeah, for yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the subscription services, like your Netflix, your Amazons, oh. you know, Sky over here. I went on, you type in the, the name Sean Connery. Sky had four Sean Connery movies. Netflix had about three. Um, the Hunt for Red October was common to a number of them. And it's so depressing. It's so depressing. That's what you get for getting those stupid subscriptions. Get them one at a time. What you should have done, and you can mm-hmm. do it tomorrow if you want, you want to get a much better response for your Sean Connery punch-in? Punch-in YouTube, Sean Connery. You'll have 15 movies completely mm-hmm. uncut to choose from. Not mm-hmm. that quality. I mean, the, d- the dumb thing about kind of the sort of subscription things as well is it's like this thing of having to be a member of like 12 different video stores because they're like, obviously the thing is as soon as Netflix became successful, Netflix used to have more older movies, but as soon as it became successful, all the studios took all of their libraries and took them away and thinking, oh, we're going to keep all the universal things like all the Fox things went to Fox. So then, so then the annoying thing is now, I mean, there are things like you said, YouTube or, or Apple, which kind of like have a more like expansive or, I don't know. I just end up like buying loads of Blu-rays of things and just kind yeah. of, you know. No, I mean the only, the only actual subscription that I have is Arrow, the Arrow channel. Because that's yeah, a bunch yeah. of cool shit. <laughs> I don't yeah, mind yeah. paying them every month. I don't even have to watch it. I just like that they exist. I'm happy to pay them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Shutter is also good, uh, by the way. They've got a lot of good stuff on, on Shutter too. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about this before we move on to British cinema uh, moments is what was the last moment? Because uh, I guess it's been a while since we've been in the cinema. The last film I saw was a, a screening of Wonder Woman 1984. But the last the last great audience reaction moment I had in a cinema with Payne Punters was the restaurant scene in The Invisible Man, Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man. I don't want to ruin that moment obviously but it's an incredible audience reaction moment and again that's something i went i paid to see after having seen it in a press screening because i wanted to experience that moment with real people not a bunch of stuffed shirt film journalists <laughs> so <laughs> what was what was what was the last one for for you guys i i think invisible man before the first lockdown i think the last two films i saw at the cinema was emma and the invisible man but Emma was an industry screening. The last one I saw with a paying audience was The Invisible Man. So it's probably exactly the same moment, that kind of like that restaurant scene with uh, Elizabeth Moss and her sister, is it? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, it would be that. You know, I saw Ted at twice at the cinema and like, um, you know, but then it was the people are spaced out. And obviously like in a pandemic, when the audience is spaced out, you can't really tell like ha- how, how people are reacting. It was different like with Good, the Bad, the Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West. I felt the vibe there, the sort of, I felt is that people felt like fortunate to be there 
And there was a sort of people were sort of a bit misty eyed because it's that thing of like, we're how lucky are we <laughs> to watch Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in the cinema? Like everybody's got their masks on and stuff, but you could just, it felt like I said, I think I mentioned this earlier maybe, but it felt like going to church. But in terms of like an audience response, it, I would say the same thing. It was, I saw Invisible Man and that restaurant twist like got a big reaction. Yeah. I guess the very last time would probably be the restaurant scene in, in, um, in Invisible Man, but as I said earlier, the last profound time was the talk Joker. show scene in the Joker. Okay. I, I got a I got I got a good little one that's like a sort of a, a funny moment that has an interesting response. It's almost like uh, in 1917, there's a bit in that when you watch that with an audience, that's a really funny response because it's people like sort of um you're you're reacting like uh, somebody's kind of like uh, like somebody's helpful dad. Is there's a moment in that movie where where um, George Mackay, is that the name of the actor? Mm-hmm. He's yep. got that milk. And then later on, he meets the French mother and she says, he has, uh, do, you, do you have any milk? And the whole audience goes, he's got milk. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the whole audience, the whole audience literally makes this noise like, oh, it's like <laughs> if you said to me, like, so if you don't have a screwdriver, do you? I do have a screwdriver. <laughs> and the whole audience reacts like that. That's, like, that's kind of she's a mechanic moment. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> he has got milk, but it's literally like it's almost like it's almost like the sort of a sound of like sort of. I, I always said to Christy Wilson Cairns, who wrote that, I said, I said, when, when that bit happens, it's almost like you could put like a Mario sound effect on it, like an item. It's like, <laughs> do you have milk? Bling! Like it's like <laughs> achievement unlocked. He has he has that item. Yes. <laughs> Well, in the interest of clumsy segues, thank you for bringing up 1917, because that's a British movie, and I know you guys wanted to talk about British films specifically on this podcast. Uh, Edgar, do you want to set this up? Do you want to tell the uh, tell the good people at home why you want to talk about British cinema? Okay, so, so basically, d- during lockdown, I guess for like five months before I could get back into production on Last Night in Soho, I was like fully at home, and I had kind of had this thing where, uh, like, I-, I would say over the last 20 years of buying DVDs and Blu-rays, I had accrued a lot of movies that I'd bought but never got around to watching. And they were usually like films for whatever reason that I say this like, um, you know, kind of with, with no pride. But like I would I'd start to call them like coffee table movies where I would bought like very celebrated movies that I hadn't got around to watching. But I had them on my shelf like I, like somebody come around saying, oh, you've got a great collection of like BFI Blu-rays. <laughs> And Criterion and uh, Eureka and uh, all yeah. great labels. So basically, I made I have made this like master list of films I haven't seen, and I sometimes think about my own mortality when I look at it because I'm thinking I'm never going to see all of these films before I die, am I? <laughs> like, but I thought I'd make a serious dent in this list. And so last year I did watch like <laughs> 350 films, and I made a serious dent in this list. And one of the things I started with was like Martin Scorsese had sort of put out this list. Um, I think he'd given it to a fan and the fan had put it onto the internet and it gone viral of like a fan had said to him a long time ago, Mr. Scorsese, what what international films would you recommend? And, you know, I want to get into world cinema. And so Scorsese had done this kind of like sort of, uh, I guess like a, a starter list. I mean, it's funny, as soon as you put that list on the internet, people say, where's so-and-so, where's so-and-so? It's like, he literally, it was like the first 40 movies off the top of his head. So I'd seen that list and it was kind of interesting. But then I thought in the lockdown thinking, you know, I've only seen 20 of that list. So I worked my way through the rest of the list and I watched like 
you know, and also this is a great way when you're in lockdown, watching a lot of world cinema is a great way to travel the world. So I watched, <laughs> American friend, I watched like the American friend before the revolution, big deal on Madonna street, death by hanging, Dr. Magoose, Mabuse, the gambler, the enigma of Casper Hauser, high and low, Ilso Paso, Kings of the road, La Terra tremor, marriage of Maria Braun, the merchant of four seasons, Napoleon, Abel Ganser's Napoleon, all five hours of it. Rocco and his brothers, Sancho the Bailiff, heartbreaking. Oh, my God. Yugetsu and Umberto D, also heartbreaking. Anyway, I was so sort of moved by this. I don't really know Martin Scorsese that well. I've met him twice, and he's always been very nice to me, but I've only met him in passing. My neighbor in L.A., Alfonso Gomez Rajon, is good friends with him, and I said, hey, if you could I get me his assistant's address? I want to write him a letter. So I wrote Martin Scorsese a letter to basically say thank you, because also I'd say this as well, as well as the films, pretty easily you can find, if there's one of those movies, Martin Scorsese has probably written an essay on it, or sometimes on YouTube, there's like him talking about Death by Hanging or Before the Revolution. So without something like the BFI South Bank, I could sort of recreate it at home by watching the movie and then seeing what Martin Scorsese had to say about it. So I felt in this weird way, like um, unbeknownst to him, Martin Scorsese was like my film professor, and I was watching this kind of, I was getting through this module of international cinema. So then I wrote to him and I said, uh, I sent this really nice letter and I said, it was really genuinely like, I was like just um, in this lockdown, so sort of moved to be able to watch all of these films and sort of travel the world and like, just saying like, thank you. And I sort of said, I wish you could like, and it's similar to, I feel the same way about Quentin. I almost wish you could talk about every movie. <laughs> that would be a better thing to have on Netflix is instead of like, skipping ahead to fucking Bridgerton at the end is like to, to go to skip over to like Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino or Joe Dante and see what they have to say about it. Anyway, so I wrote this letter and then as a literally as a PS at the end, I wrote, cause I was kind of curious and he, I think Martin Scorsese writes and talks about British film better than most British filmmakers and critics. And sometimes <laughs> you need somebody like Scorsese or yourself, Quentin, to tell that their own country is what's great because, you know, usually, you know, this is like with best of lists, eventually the sort of the same list start doing the rounds and they sort of become aggregate lists. So if there's like in Time Out or something, the hundred greatest British films, it's usually the usual suspects and stuff. It's usually the kind of like that the same films kind of keep cropping up and not that they're bad films, but it's like the same movies. It's like, you can't do the list without mentioning like Lawrence of Arabia or you or like don't look now great movies. But like, so I was just curious. And I literally said at the end of the email to Scorsese, I said, by the way, I've always been curious. What are some of your fame, favorite British films when you were growing up? I know. And I, and I sort of like, Take, took these out of the equation. I said, you've spoken a lot about Powell and Pressburger and Hitchcock and David Lean. What are some other ones? So then I sent this email and then it was basically like a voicemail where Martin Scorsese rattled off his list. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go through it and then we'll talk about some of them. So this is what, <laughs> and so I, I have to say, cause then, cause people are so annoying on the internet, but they're saying, what about, what about like saying like fucking Fox news, but it's like, he if he's very clear. Mike Scorsese assumes that I know the famous Hammer ones and he assumes that I know the Ealing comedies. And I've already said, don't worry about Powell and Pressburger and Hitchcock. So they're off, they're off the table. And he does say like, so this is Mike Scorsese. He said, this is a pretty, now if you're at home and you're a film geek, you might want to have a pen and paper ready. Um, 
this is a pretty much an incomplete list, I would think. Obviously, there are major Ealing studio films like Kind Hearts and Coronets, which are prominent. But there have been some others over the years that have really stayed with me. I'll run through a few titles with you. Let's see. If you haven't seen Station 6 Sahara by Seth Holt, you should. It's a very special film for me. There's Edmund, Edmund Greville's Brief Ecstasy. There are other Ealing films like The Halfway House and Went the Day Well. Um, another Seth Holt film, Seth Holt did Station 6 Sahara. Nowhere to Go is an interesting noir. Obviously, The Nanny, yet another Seth Holt film is a favourite. Madonna of the Seven Moons and The Man in Grey are favourites. Some Terence Fisher films like So Long at the Fair and early Hammer films he made like A Stolen Face and Four-Sided Triangle, which I saw many times as a kid. David Lean's The Sound Barrier is a favourite. Also, This Happy Breed. The composition in widescreen and black and white photography and sound editing and performances in Guns at Patazi by John Gwilliman is very interesting. Green for Danger with Alistair Sim, which Quentin showed me on 35mm once. A disturbing <laughs> movie, The Mindbenders. Another early Terence Fisher movie, To the Public Danger, which is only about an hour long, but it's fascinating on YouTube. Uh, the Ealing Studio film, It Always Rains on Sunday, is a favorite. It reminds me of The Long Good Friday, which I'm sure you're aware of. He's correct. Um, Alexander, <laughs> Mc Alexander McKendrick's A High Wind in Jamaica is interesting. Thorold Dickinson's The Queen of Spades is definitely a favorite. More Ealing Studio films, Hue and Cry, Robert Hamer's Pink String and Ceiling Wax is another favorite. The Blue Lamp, uh, The Good Die Young, which I think is uh, Terence Young. Mandy by Alexander McKendrick. The crazed vampire film called Vampires. You may know of it, directed by Jose uh, Larraz in 1974. Uncle Silas from 1947. I'm sure you're aware of The Legend of Hell House. I am. I ripped it off in Don't. <laughs> another another semi-favourite is Burn Witch Burn. The British title is Night of the Eagle. Then there's also The Flesh of the Fiends in 1959 and a bunch of Hammer films like The Snorkel, 1957, and Scream of Fear in 1960. The British title is Taste of Fear. Then there's These Are the Damned, 1961, English title of The Damned. I'm sure you're aware of Plague of the Zombies, John Gilling. He's correct. Also, I'm sure you're aware of the Quatermass films, the one in 1954, and my favorite Quatermass in the Pit, 1967. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, 1971. The Devil Rides <laughs> Out, 1967. The Asphyx, uh, a-S-P-H-Y-X. I'm sure that, uh, the asphyx, um, which is great. Uh, there's so much more of these, really, and this may at least give you a start if you haven't seen some of these. And then he goes, oh, by the way, two silent films by Anthony Asquith, which I think are remarkable. Underground and Shooting Stars, a truly remarkable use of editing. Other films by Basil Dearden, like Sapphire, which I've seen again recently and I still think is very strong. The short BBC film Whistle and I'll Come to You by Jonathan Miller. The Ealing film Dead of Night. Uh, this is this is a real like a uh, random one. I was captivated by the TV semi doc series on the Enfield Haunting, which is from uh, maybe only ten years ago. Um, also, the passion, the lonely passion of Judith Hearn, the Pumpkin Eater, not to mention the Innocents. All three of those are by Jack Clayton. Of course, there's the Seventh Veil and Yield to the Night. And he says, uh, anyway, I hope you're doing well with your work and can't wait to see the new you one. Don't give Stanley Thompson a shout out. You've named all these other directors and you say you'll deny you don't say Jaylee Thompson. Wait, wait, who did I not give a shout out to? Jaylee Thompson. Oh yeah, Yield to the Night, Jaylee Thompson. No, he didn't, I say he didn't mention that, but Jaylee Thompson, oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Yield to the Night, <laughs> Diana Dawes' best performance. Like, yeah, um, I agree. A, a good double bill is Yield to the Night and Dance with a Stranger, which is essentially two versions of the same story. <laughs> so I got this email 
uh, it was amazing. I wrote it down. I'd say maybe about less than half of them I'd seen. Now, huh. in like January, there's only five left. That I, I bought all of them I could on Blu-ray. The ones I couldn't find, Scorsese actually burnt me like DVDRs uh, for them. Uh, but I have like five left to go. But then I shared like the email I said, hey, I got to send you this email I got with Martin Scorsese. I, and by the way, I told Martin that I sort of said, I, I, I sent him a message the other day. I said, I'm five away from finishing this. And Quentin Tarantino is hot on my trail. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, I basically shared that. And this started what we, uh, I, well, uh, like, I guess we can only describe as, we call it the British book club, but it's essentially the British film club where we have been watching these films. And then this, and Quentin can talk about this, has led down a whole other rabbit hole of just British films in general. So I just want to, just publicly, not that he's going to listen to this, but thank you, Martin Scorsese, for like the most amazing email, and also a bunch of a bunch of movies that not many people talk about anymore. Yeah, right on, right on to that. Edgar shared me the list. I wrote it down. I started going down some of the lists, and that re- led me down a rabbit hole since I'm competitive to find my own ones. <laughs> <laughs> Then Edgar gave me his list of ones that I haven't seen that I should see. I have a little list of ones that you know, from before that, of British films that I'm a fan of, but I'm also excited by the ones that I also just kind of like uh, discovered on my own from going down this Martin Scorsese, Edgar Wright wormhole. Uh-huh. And it's like, okay, you know, of the Scorsese list of the ones that I had seen before, I have a 35 millimeter print of High Wind in Jamaica. So I have that. Uh, I love the scene where the monkey dies. That's amazing. <laughs> Not only have I seen Green for Danger, I like Green for Danger so much that I read the book that Green for Danger is based on, and I've read three other Inspector Corporal novels, mysteries, because I really love that character. I wish there was four other Inspector Corporal uh, uh, movies with Alistair Sims playing him. And uh, actually, one of the things I really like about Green for Danger is... Um, my favorite British actress of that period is the actress Sally Gray. I'm a big, big Sally Gray fan. So that's actually how I even got to Green for Danger because I saw Sally Gray in a couple of other movies and I wanted to see as much as I could see of her and that led me to Green for Danger. Uh, I had also seen uh, Vampires. I'd also seen Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde naturally. Naturally, I've seen Dead of Night. Uh, I've seen The Innocence. I'm not, I'm not as much of a fan of The Innocence as everybody else is. Oh, I, I love that one. And I love... Yield to the Night by J. Lee Thompson. I'm a, I, don't, I don't think there's a single, um, I, don't, I don't think there's a single kitchen sink drama that J. Lee Thompson did during that period that I'm not a fan of. I, I, I like them all. The ones that I went down the list that I got a chance to see is the first one on the list that I saw that I really, really liked was the Terrence Fisher film, So Long at the Fair. Yeah, and I watched that. It was I hadn't seen that either before. And one of the things about that one that I thought was so was so cool is um, it's very similar to The Lady Vanishes. I'm not going to make a case that it's better than The Lady Vanishes, but I think I enjoyed it more because it, there was an interesting storytelling aspect. Um, you really want to fucking know what's, what, 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 what's happening. You really want to know what happened. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be a pat answer. And it's not a pat answer. (laughs) Far from it, frankly, by the way. But you really want to know what's going on. And as opposed to playing a Rosemary's Baby-like game, like, well, 
is this person crazy? Did this really? No, no, no. You know that they're lying to her. So the, the premise of the movie is that Gene Simmons uh, and David Tomlinson, her brother, have gone to Paris and they spend the night in Paris. And then the next morning, the hotel that they're in, they wake up the next morning and David Tomlinson is not only not there, but the room that he was in does not exist anymore. And we as an audience know that like she's not crazy, like she came there with her brother and the hotel staff are telling her that like you checked in on your own, your brother wasn't here, the room doesn't exist. And so, you know, it's it, it, in that same genre as like Bunny Lake is missing or, you know. But when you absolutely positively know that that the hotel people are lying. Yeah. But they're doing a really convincing job of making her think she's crazy. Yeah. It's, it, it's really, but, but one of the things that really kind of blew me away is naturally I'm a big Terrence Fisher fan, but frankly, I'd only seen his Hammer movies. To see him work with a big star like Gene Simmons and to see what looked like a really rather big budget movie in the 40s in Britain, it was like, holy shit, I've never seen him work on that kind of canvas before. That was really surprising. Uh, I saw Sapphire, which also is a huge uh, uh, um, recommendation, and I loved it. I adored it. I mentioned it already. I, I think it's the movie that everyone says. Uh, Peeping Tom is, but not only that, there is just this, and there's another film that I, I uh, that's on the BFI channel, but I don't want to subscribe to it, but I want to see is that with the pools of London. I'm sure that the BFI would give you a free subscription. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sitting here in Tel Aviv. If they want to give me a free subscription, find me through Empire, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of the ones I want to see, I, don't, I want to see the blue light. I can't see it because it's only on BFI. But a lot of them, they're only on BFI. You might get something through the post soon, Quentin, that you'll enjoy. Okay, okay. I, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, you, you threatened that. I'm looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> but one of the things about it is one of the discoveries I made that I absolutely positively loved was uh, Basil Jardin's jazz reworking of Othello all night long. There's a Criterion box set called The London Underground that has Victim, Sapphire, The League of Gentlemen, and mm -hmm. All Night Long on it. Yeah, which is where. And, and um, I mean, <laughs> this might sound patronizing, and I don't mean it to be. I could not believe I was watching a British movie from that era be so fucking hip. <laughs> it's 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 just it's it's really hip but the thing is though combine that uh, sight unseen not having seen pools of, of london that's about a a, a a black merchant sailor and combine that also done by basil dearden and combine that with uh all night long and combine that with sapphire that makes basil dearden one of the most race conscious directors right up there with sam fuller that existed in that era. It's like there's Joseph, e, uh, there's, uh, Joseph L. Lewis, there's uh, Sam Fuller, there's Basil Dearden, and then there's everybody else. Well, the interesting thing about this list for me as well is like, I mean, in a similar way to talk is that it is that great thing. And this is why you asked Martin Scorsese for the list is that there, some of these directors are sort of like not necessarily as appreciated now and, and like weirdly something like basil dearden i would say even growing up had sort of maybe like a stuffy reputation 
-hmm. then actually watching the movies, especially for their time, they're like really kind of like strong sapphire victim like all night long um pool of london i have seen and it's really good it's like a great um post-war noir like you mm -hmm. know it's another film on this list like hue and cry both hue and cry and pool of london just have extraordinary like post-war london footage just like even in the 50s obviously london was still ravaged by the blitz and just the location work is extraordinary and so it's that that was the amazing thing for me and the same i had the same feeling about terence fisher as 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 uh, Quentin is obviously I'd seen tons of the Terence films. In fact, I remember that we watched at the new Beverly, a double bill of curse of Frankenstein and the horror of Dracula back to back, which was like <laughs> one of the best double bills of all time. Yeah. But I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen the early Terence Fisher films and the ones from the list that I was like really struck by aside from uh, so long at the fair is um, to the public danger, which is like an hour long. You can find it on YouTube actually, because I'm not sure there's even a DVD or a Blu-ray of it but it's an adaptation of a Patrick Hamilton radio play. And Patrick Hamilton is the writer of um, Gaslight, Hangover Square, an amazing book called 20,000 Streets Under the Sky. Like in a very uh, dark writer, like sort of um, writing about, mostly about London. And To the Public Danger is a really like cruel little, I mean, it's like an hour long. It's on YouTube. It's really easy to find. And it's like really strong. And then also the other Terence Fisher ones that like, um, Four-Sided Triangle is a very odd movie because uh, it's almost like watching The Fly uh, if it was only interested in the romantic, melodramatic part of it and not the sci-fi part. It's kind of mm. a strange movie. The other one that I really enjoyed, though, was a film called A Stolen Face by Terence Fisher, which I suddenly, you know, sometimes when you kind of like you're a gap in your movie, or there's an extra dot to connect. I've always loved Eyes Without a Face and I loved Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In. And then Stolen, when I was watching Stolen Face, I was like, wow, I bet like Pedro Almodovar must love this movie as well. Because yeah. a, sto a Stolen Face is about a plastic surgeon who is in love with this woman who doesn't love him back. And then he does kind of pro like pro bono work at like, um, at like a, a prison to rehabilitate people who um, have disfigurements. So he like is working with this woman uh, who's just got out of prison, who's got a disfigurement and he's restoring her face, but he restores her face to look like the woman who won't marry him. <laughs> <laughs> and the same actress is playing both parts. But in the later point, the actress who you've seen, uh, I have to look up the name of the actress, but she's dubbed, I think it's Lizbeth Scott. Does that sound right? Could you look oh, at Scott? Yeah. 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 I think it is her. That makes sense. Yeah. No, that makes sense. She did. Yeah. She did a series of British films. So in the latter half of the movie, when she's playing like the sort of cockney woman who's got out of prison, who's now had her face restored to look like Lizbeth Scott, Lizbeth Scott seemingly is, is then post-dubbed by an English cockney actress. So it's a really, it's a wild movie. It's a really great little B movie. So I guess the thing going through this list is that I was like floored by, I mean, it's obviously ones that like sort of just kind of ones that either like directors who, you know, as they maybe got older, had got like a stuffier reputation or, or like a, you know, like, I, well, we'll talk about Guns at Batazi because like a lot of later John Gwilliman films, you know, maybe like Towering Inferno or he did King Kong as well. Mm -hmm. And Guns at Batazi is like a different proposition. And to see these sort of directors in their early work, you know, obviously a lot of J. Lee Thompson's earlier films are a lot different from 10 to Midnight, you know, like mm -hmm. things like Tiger Bay. 
I can defend both eras, all right? But uh, uh, they, <laughs> no, 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 they're totally. very different. They're very different. Yeah. I can defend both eras. I can defend the canon era just as much as I can defend uh, Yellow Balloon. There's another great one uh, that like uh, isn't on Martin's list uh, by Jay Lee Thompson, which I watched actually when I was writing last night in Soho called um, No Trees in the Street. Oh, like, yeah, uh-huh. that's amazing with Herbert Lom. It's really strong. And like, um, he, he was, you know, like, I mean, I know you're a big Quentin, you schooled me on J. Lee Thompson. And I felt particularly um, shamed by that because J. Lee Thompson is from Bristol. Like he grew up like 30 miles away <laughs> from where I did. And I, I must admit, I feel ashamed to say this. I, I, I know this now, but there was a point where I, I thought that maybe I didn't really realize that J. Lee Thompson was even a British director because J. Lee Thompson had kind of become synonymous with Charles Bronson when I was growing mm-hmm. up. But, mm. um, did a lot of Clint Eastwood movies as well. Yeah. Um, no, he didn't do Clint Eastwood movies. He did uh, Pink Cadillac. No, Clint Eastwood no? directed Pink Cadillac. Oh, okay. All right. My, my mistake. <laughs> you might want to edit that bit out. Just- <laughs> Is this what? Yeah, I'm embarrassed now. I'm embarrassed now. Le- listen, le- leave it in. E- even you can be fallible, Chris. Um, <laughs> it has been known from time to time. How do you pronounce it? Batsai? Uh, 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 Batazi, maybe? Batazi. Batazi. That's my favorite of the ones on the Scorsese list. Guns of Batazi. And you could knock me over with a feather when I ended up loving that movie as much as I did. Because, you know, I think of John Gellerman from Gellerman as uh, the movies he did from the late 60s through the 70s. And um, it, almost exactly what like, Edgar's saying about the way um, a lot of these directors in their older years are defined by, you know, uh, you know, Basil, you know, if you ask me Nine months ago, Basil Dearden, the first thing I would say would be cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these British actors, at least as far as I'm concerned, I remember their international American movies that they did in the uh, late 50s or 60s. So to me, Jack Hawkins is the really boring lead of Land of the Pharaohs. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Hawkins is in boring international movies. Uh, I like. I really like Richard Attenborough in um, uh, uh, the, uh, the Great Escape, but I'm not a big Richard Attenborough fan as an actor. I'm not a really big fan of, of uh, Dirk Bogart's international movies. Uh, uh, then to see these guys in one movie after another in England when they were a little younger at their at, at their prime in uh, 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 playing all these different types of roles and all these different types of characters, it's a revelation. I realized I didn't know who the fuck these guys were to, you know, it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's like judging Tara Shomofumi from his American movies, you know, to some degree. Um, but Guns of uh, 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 Batazi is so fucking great. It was such a magnificent film again deals with a very interesting racial aspect and deals with it very forthrightly and for a movie that on that's kind of remind me a little bit of hateful eight for a movie that could almost be a play not quite not not quite but almost be a play 75 percent of it could be a play and by the way it would be a fantastic play can you imagine that can you imagine all the all, all the situations that happened just people on stage just coming in and out of that door i mean it would be amazing I would be such an interest, uh, such an exciting night of theater. 
But then the widescreen framing of it, the use of, of the uh, of the widescreen format is just remarkable. But then at the center of it is Richard Attenborough's tour de force performance. And I'm not a fan of his as an actor. I am now after <laughs> that and all night long in League of Gentlemen, I am now, but I mean, but I mean, it's tour de force. And it's one of those kind of, um, characters that just really grabs you where it's he's a military he's not he's not even an officer he's a, 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 a sergeant major and he runs the office he runs the sergeant's club not the officer's club the sergeant's mess he runs the sergeant's mess and so the people who are really under him are the other sergeants and he's a spit and polished guy does all the rules the right way goes by the rule book like the army clown, literally the army clown, the one that they all make fun of because of his uh, uh, his devotion to the hierarchy of of, of of the pomp and circumstance of the military. And he is a clown. He is a clown. That's how we think of him. But in this military dramatic. 24 hour war situation. He's the one with the fortitude to do what nobody else can do. And it's all the things that make him a joke in peacetime that actually don't even make him a hero, make him a genuine soldier. But then the, the other dual aspect is it's not even a war. It's a weird 24 hour situation that develops. That happens, I, and to, you can't describe it anymore without ruining the movie. But it's it's just it was it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. And I, I've had I've had that on video for forty five years, and I've never <laughs> watched it. <laughs> you know what's interesting? It, it it actually reminded me, and obviously it, it wasn't an influence because you hadn't seen it. But like the films I start to think of, it's like it's almost like watching like a if Zulu were a play, like there's that aspect to it. But it, the two films it reminded me of is like, it reminded me of a bit of Reservoir Dogs and it reminded me of a bit of Assault on Precinct 13. Like it never gets this, it never quite becomes an action film like Assault on Precinct 13. But it threatens to, it's right on the lip of it. It's yeah. right there. You know? And it's it's interesting that Scorsese mentions like the, the, the photography. I think the cinematographer is Douglas Slocum. Yeah, I think you're uh, right. And who did The Servant, which is looks amazing, and then later did, uh, he did Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, Douglas Slocum? Yeah, yeah. 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 He, did, yeah he did all three indies, with, with, well, before Crystal Skull. But I, I did see him, like, I remember when I went to, they had this British film thing at Windsor Castle, and Douglas Slocum was there, and it was like, oh my God, I mean, he must have been like 90 or something. I, when I say the Windsor Castle thing, the one thing I say about that is more exciting than meeting the Queen was when I went to this Windsor Castle thing where the entire British film industry were there and everybody had to wear badges. George Lucas was there as well, even though he's American. But the funniest thing was is that even George Lucas has to wear a badge for the Queen. So the funniest <laughs> thing to me was seeing George Lucas with a, a name tag saying like George Lucas. So it's like, well, I know who you are, but clearly the Queen does not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, is it like George, George Lucas's foray uh, electronics badge? <laughs> the thing, okay, <laughs> the, the reason I bring up the Windsor Castle thing, you'll have this question. So you're going to Windsor Castle to meet the Queen. The whole of the British film industry is there. And when I was going there, there was a point where you you were downstairs, you put your coats in the head, you go, go up to this function room. And just by some sort of kismet, like when I was walking up the steps, even though there are fucking hundreds of people there, like I just happened to walk up the steps on my own and nobody else was there. Everybody else was either inside or downstairs. And at the top of the stairs, when I'm walking up a fucking castle, by the way, at the top of the stairs is Christopher Lee. And then I just stand completely still and I just stop and I'm just looking at Christopher Lee and Christopher Lee is looking back at me. He doesn't know who I am, but we're just looking at each other. And I just thinking, I'm just going to stand here because <laughs> I like is <laughs> it's like fucking Count Dracula is at the top of the stairs. This is amazing. <laughs> And to be honest, I, any, everything after that was a disappointment. <laughs> 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 to go back to Guns of Batazi, so Scorsese mentioned the cinematography, and there's a shot in that movie where I, I admit I rewound it because I was like, that's amazing. There's a bit in the movie where um, Richard Ambrose has corralled the troops to go and like get some ammo from like the sort of the ammunition store. And then there's this amazing, like, I think it's like a wanna. It's like a great dolly shot where it shows them all wordlessly coming in. I feel like you're rolling mm -hmm. at the moment. Wordlessly coming <laughs> in and tooling up. Like, and Graham Stark from the Pink Panther films is one of the other guys. And uh, Johnny Layden, the singer of Johnny Remember Me, who's also mm -hmm. a great escape. But there's this amazing like shot where just wordlessly they get to the ammunition store and then they just kind of like tool up and it's all done in one dolly shot. And I was, I had to rewind it. It was so cool. <laughs> no, I am so now into seeing other John Gillerman movies of that era. One of the ones that I really, really want to see, this is a movie I've always wanted to see anyway, is uh, a movie he did starring Aldo Ray called uh, The Day They Robbed the Bank of England. Oh, I've heard that of that. Never seen it. Aldo Ray and is Peter O'Toole's first, uh, uh, like, lead role. I haven't seen that one. I've but heard the star is Aldo Ray. One of the, one of the things that's funny about it was um, not only watching all these movies, it somehow turned into a night. It somehow turned into a Nigel Patrick film festival. <laughs> yes, he's amazing. Nigel Patrick, who's so great in Sapphire, he's also like great in The League of Gentlemen, Basil Deer. If you've never seen The League of Gentlemen, that is one of the great heist films. And like everybody in it is great. Attenborough, Jack yeah. Hawkins. Nigel Patrick is so good in The League of Gentlemen. It's such a, it's such a great Okay, now here's a, okay. I'm having a big problem with a lot of these British crime films though. I'm having a big problem. I do not like the last 20 minutes of most of them. Right. <laughs> because it is how the crimes and how the crooks get brought down is so contrived. Right. I'm, if they're 90 minutes long, I'm loving the first hour. And I'm finding the more than most American movies at that time. And I have a problem with that in American movies too, but it's like, it's extra contrived in these British crime movies. They should have gotten away with it in the League of Gentlemen. At least got out of the country that night. I didn't buy all those cops outside. What happens a kid, is a kid memory? Yeah, and yeah. you know that's it. You know that's <laughs> fucking it. And no, I don't believe that the cop came by and remembered the, and, and remembered the uh, uh, license plate number from the car and that's gonna bring the entire aspect down. I mean, like, 
what's the point of writing such a good crime if you're going to have it foiled so redundantly? The minute you see that shot of that little kid uh, 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 making a note of, of the license plate number, you might as well stop watching the movie because you know what's going to happen. I do, I do though, to be fair to it, the thing that I do like about the end of that movie that I think, is, and I haven't seen it for a couple of years, so I might be misremembering, but as far as I recall, the end of the movie is that even though they've been caught, they're sort of happy to be in custody with each other because they're back as a gang again. It's a little less than they're happy to be a gang. It's more like they, they, they've actually become a military unit, you know, so yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like they're going to a POW camp or something and their, their officer has been reunited with them. But, uh, 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 yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't like it when the crooks are brought down for contrived reasons. They could get away. I think it's a convention that they get caught anyway, because mm. they have to get caught. But when it's in such a contrived way. Yeah, because of a moral imperative. Yeah, it's, it's a moral imperative. And then so, you know, and I mean, really, his crime is so good. How can you not put at least as a quarter of the thought that you put into devising the crime into what foils it. There's a couple of ones on this list actually that I will say that I think are like the are, are pretty hard edge that are like um, the a nice you know that I don't know if you saw yet Quentin the Good Die Young with like Laura. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. Oh no, I thought- I, I, I thought that was contrived too. I thought that was contrived too. I kind of saw where everyone's little character was. I didn't quite buy everyone's little story in it. I didn't finish watching it. I got, I got, I got, I got sick of it. I liked Lawrence Harvey as a n- nasty piece of work. I thought he I was liked, like, look, I liked, I liked him. I liked, oddly enough, I liked John Collins for her first scene in it. I thought that was kind of cool. But uh, uh, yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was, I thought that was contrived. Did you see uh, Nowhere to uh, Nowhere to Go? You haven't seen yet, have you? No, I haven't seen that. That's an interesting movie, and that's kind of one because it's Seth Holt. It's one of the last. I think it's the. No, last, I want to see that. That that looks like it's going to be one I'm going to like. It's the last Ealing movie, and it's also a very. I mean, what's interesting as well? That's it's interesting that Scorsese mentions it. The other thing I think gets lost in the history of British film a little bit because people, you know, like as things go on, people focus on certain things, and so Ealing means a certain thing. It, Ealing means like the Lavender Hill mob and the Titfield Thunderbolt and Kind Hearts and Coronets. But there's all these Ealing noir films, which are sort of like a, a, a pretty fucking great. The ones that I was really taken, there was a couple that I'd seen before I got the Scorsese one. So one of the ones I'd seen already was Went the Day Well, which is like knockout. And I, I saw watched Went the Day Well. I was like, how is it possible that I didn't see this movie before I made Hot Fuzz? Because, and if you've seen that one, Quentin. No, I haven't seen it yet. But the premise of that movie is it's a fictitious World War II tale. It's like as if Nazis had invaded the UK and they have basically taken over this village pretending to be uh, English soldiers. And then basically the, uh, the, the people of the village who are mostly like old, old ladies figure out that these soldiers are not... British, they are actually the Nazis, and then the villagers like sort of fight back, and it's fucking awesome. That <laughs> sounds fantastic. It's great, <laughs> and it's directed by Cavalcanti, who also did parts of Dead of Night, and uh, an amazing film called They Made Me a Fugitive with Trevor Howard, which is really good photography, and that's great. But there's these other Ealing ones that are like really hard edged. It there's a um, there's also this is what's great about this is though for me it's a similar thing to like finding out that like Dirk Bogart and Richard Attenborough 
and not the kind of the lovies that they became. I mean, Dirk Bogart, I think all, all is always like sort of kind of subverting his persona a little bit. But then, like you said, if you only know Dirk Bogart from Doctor in the House, it's not the same as the Dirk Bogart <laughs> from The Blue Lamp or or um, Victim or um, The Mindbenders on here, the Basil Dearden film, which is really disturbing. But the other thing I was going to say is one of the great things about this list is I went through and I, you suddenly know who actors are that are kind of like, not in the zeitgeist when I was growing up, but the kind of people that my mother or my grandmother would talk about. So my grandmother would, um, give me a second, because what's his, ah, oh, fuck, I've just blanked on his name, Stuart. Um, uh, Long? No, 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 like. Uh, Stuart Granger? Stuart Granger, there you go. Okay, so Stuart Granger is a name that I only knew because my grandmother had a crush on him. And then I see some Stuart <laughs> Granger films. I was like, now I get it. Stuart yeah. Granger is like the 40s fucking matinee idol. And like the two that are on the Scorsese list, like Madonna of the Seven Moons and um, The Man in Grey, which also like Margaret Lockwood in The Man in Grey. Holy hell, what a performance. So there's people like that. And also the other person that like, I'd only heard the name. It's like a name that you hear and like in Zeitgeist, or maybe you hear it mentioned in like a Monty Python sketch or something. <laughs> is uh, Googie Withers and Googie Withers in um, two like Ealing movies. Um, uh, it always rains on Sunday, which is fucking great. Like a little Ealing post-war noir. And also this movie, Pink String and Ceiling Wax. Googie Withers is fantastic. And she's like this kind of like British femme fatale. I mean, she was also like a sort of big, I think like a forces sweetheart. And like one of those people who would go on like, army tours and stuff. I hope I'm right in saying that. But then you see her in these noir films where she's sort of like the funny femme fatale and it's like, man, Googie Withers is so great. Like, so that was the real, and the other thing for me is, as real revelations is sometimes when you see a film by a director that you don't know them at all and it's like, well, I, actually there's one film I've seen, the one of the films that I saw on the Scorsese list that like the direction of it just really knocked me out was The Queen of Spades by- No, that's the one of the ones I want to see because you were talking about that. Oh yeah. my God. I mean. I'd seen one of his, it's been directed by Thorold Dickinson and I'd seen his version of Gaslight because there's the Gaslight, the one with Ingrid Bergman, the Hollywood version. But prior to that, there's a British version by Thorold Dickinson and it's also really strong. But then Queen of Spades, I watched it and it's like you're, you, you know, like somebody that thinking, well, this guy is like sort of Orson Welles in Citizen Kane mode or like Hitchcock, like just before going to Hollywood. And in fact, Queen of Spades is so strong, the direction and the look of it. It just is such a, uh, I want to say it's a Gainsborough film. Maybe it's not actually. No, it's not Gainsborough. It was shot in Welling Garden City when they used to have studios there. Watch Queen of Spades. And I was just like, holy hell, this is so well directed. It looks so beautiful. It's also so kind of like, um, I don't know, like a black comedy or it's got like a really sort of like sort of, uh, not, it's not really a black comedy, but it's got that kind of like nasty sort of like streak to it. I was really knocked out by it. And then I started reading up about Thorold Dickinson and lo and behold, David O. Selznick was trying to lure Thorold Dickinson to Hollywood like he did with Hitchcock, with Rebecca. But Thorold Dickinson did not go. So then you start to get into this thing of like, wow, I wonder like, is there like, he did some great movies and I want to watch some of his other ones just thinking, could he have been even bigger? But that movie, Queen of Spades, like knocked me out. I, I couldn't quite believe I had never seen it before. I was thinking like, wow, this is an amazing. Did you, did you have a DVD ever or did you see it on YouTube? I saw a Blu-ray of it. I, but I, when, I, when, I, when I got this list, all of the ones that were on Blu-ray, I just got them. I just bought them blind buy. And then- no, yeah, I want to I I see Queen of that, that might be one of the ones I want to see next. 
It's amazing. That's an amazing film. I mean, the other thing as well, like to talk about what Quentin, like we we're saying about separate rabbit holes, we, we also started watching like lots of other movies and like the Terrence Fisher thing. And also watching, weirdly enough, I had, I mean, listen, I've seen a lot of Hammer Horrors, but I had never seen the Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And what's You'd funny never seen that. I'd never seen that one. And wow. like, there's one. I saw that on the CBS Friday Night movie. It was like an in the 70s when I was a kid. <laughs> When I met Martina Buswick, I knew who she was. <laughs> Later in, in the UK, Ralph Bates became a sitcom star in the 80s. Yep. He was in a sitcom called Dear John. So yeah. what's kind of wild to me watching Ralph Bates in like, I went down to the, the Ralph Bates rabbit hole. I watched Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which led to me another DVD I'd had sitting on my shelf for like 10 years. And like, considering how much nudity I had in it, it was, it was a wonder I hadn't watched it before. <laughs> <laughs> but I watched The Vampire Lovers and Lust for a Vampire. And uh, I mean, I think Lust for a Vampire, no, The Vampire Lovers might be the uh, Hammer Horror uh, nudity film. <laughs> like, well, you know, actually just, it was funny because uh, when I was first invited with Reservoir Dogs in 92 to the uh, Sieges Horror Film Festival in Spain, so me and Tim Roth go to Sieges and I think she was a judge or something uh, who was there was um, Jonathan Demme's ex-wife, Evelyn Purcell, who did that movie Nobody's Fool with Roseanne Arquette. And her best friend was Martina Breswick, who was there at the festival. <laughs> the high, so I like, hung out with her for like a whole week at the festival. Like, oh, it's Mrs. Hyde. And she's also the happy hooker from the happy hooker goes to Washington. No, not the, the, the happy hooker goes to Hollywood. What's funny is I was watching Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I, I don't want to give too much away about last night in Soho, but there's a couple of like cool mirror shots in it. And I've been watching a lot of like great mirror shots in film. In fact, Chris, me and you were talking, I was talking to James Cameron about a particular shot in the Terminator 2 deleted scenes that I was already taken mm-hmm. with. So we as a production have been watching all of these in-camera great mirror shots and then lo and behold, in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there is a killer transformation shot, which is so lo-fi that even though we'd finished making Last Night in Soho, I found the clip on YouTube and said, guys, I can't believe we missed this one from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. As when Ralph Bates first transformed into Martin Beswick, there is a one where Ralph Bates comes out of the laboratory and, and goes into his kind of like study and it's in a handheld shot and Ralph Bates is kind of like crouched up in pain because he's about to transform. And then the camera just over Ralph Bates' shoulder moves up to a, um, a, a full-length mirror, which you've already seen. But now, whilst the camera was kind of focused on Ralph Bates crouching, the production team have just tweaked the angle of the mirror ever so slightly. The Martin Beswick is now just sitting behind Ralph Bates and it's an in-camera one And it's it's amazing. And it's like so lo-fi. And that's the thing about those later Hammer films, which I'm sure is why Scorsese loves them, is that you mm. had really great directors in the later stages of their career, like Terence Fisher and Roy Ward Baker, who had done, like so long of the fair is a much bigger movie than most of his Hammer movies, but he has the fucking chops and Roy Ward Baker has <laughs> the chops, you know? Uh, and like, so that's the thing is you watch Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and it's, it's funny. I, I like, um, I, I post on Instagram, like the spines of the things I've been watching and I posted a lot of things and it had a lot of Hammer films. And one commenter said, uh, Quentin, this will drive you insane. Uh, <laughs> and this commenter said, he goes, do you watch any good movies by like Kubrick or David Lynch? 
He goes like, "These are, sure, these are fun, but they're pure pulp." And I just responded. I went, "Fuck you!" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I said, with the utmost respect, go fuck yourself." <laughs> but the thing is, is like. This is the reason that why we love these movies and why Scorsese loves them. It's about, it, ultimately, these things are about craft. It's like, you'd have to be fucking dumb at this point to sneer at Hammer Horror movies. But even if they're kind of like pulp, <laughs> pulpy and stuff, it's like, it's just the craft of them. That's why, like, that's why people love Mario Bava films. It's not just because they're horror films. It's because he's one of the best directors in the world. And he's, yeah. doing, he's doing stuff. Like that people like maybe take on, you know, whether David Lynch or like Martin Scorsese, like, or take on things from that, or even Fellini, like Fellini kind of like, uh, you know, takes off Barber in um, Spirits of the Dead. And I think that's one of the things in this day and age is that like, uh, we're of the generation, all of us, where we grew up like watching, like aside from going to the movies to watch something, if you, if you watch a movie, you watch it all the way through. If you are watching something on TV when you're a kid, before streaming, you would watch a film because it was on TV and you would watch it all the way through. And if you even got sort of VHS out from the store, you would watch it all the way through. You wouldn't like get a VHS out and like stop after 15 minutes. Like you would watch <laughs> the whole thing. And that is how what I sort of like the thing where I guess we become connoisseurs of like the great bits in what Films that if they were on Netflix, other people might have switched off by this point saying, oh, what else is on? Streaming has created like such kind of attention deficit disorder. And it's that thing where sort of like, so Dr. Jack's The Sister Hide is, is a great movie anyway. But then there's these little bits where like there's a shot where you, I literally had to, like as soon as it finished, find that clip, show it to the production team saying, look at this fucking shot. And it was like, literally, <laughs> what's funny is that like Chung Chung Hoon, who shot Last Night in Soho, had done one shot on the day where something that I thought was going to be an effect shot and Chung said, oh, like this. And he like did the in-camera trick. I was like, man, like, wow, how did I think of that? And then it's like, you, I saw a similar thing, Dr. Jekyll's Sister Hyde. And it's just that that's the sort of magic of movies. It's like when you see like these kind of like great craftsmen working in like what was then slightly like looked down on as like that, they're, they're, that somehow they're slumming it. When in reality... You know, Martin Scorsese doesn't think that. So when this, so I can't remember the name of the Instagram guy, but like, sort of, my suggestion is, well, fuck it, you're giving him too much credit. Just maybe <laughs> <laughs> giving him a shout out. Watch all the Hammer films and come back to us. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He should, no, he should, he should watch uh, Lolita for the seventh time. <laughs> Going down my own rabbit hole, I found a couple of really, really interesting ones that I had never ever heard of. One that I, I found that I really, really thought was very interesting and has a really terrific ending, especially for me talking about uh, British crime films where I don't like the ending, is this film called Strong Room. And it's from 1962. And it's directed by Vernon Swell, who also directed The Vampire Beast Craves Blood, which is actually the very first horror film I ever saw. Uh, theatrically, it wasn't theatrically, it was at a drive-in, but the first time I ever left the house to, my stepdad took me to a drive-in to see the Vampire Beast Craze Blood. Um, and Strong Room, it's uh, a bank robbery movie. And the whole idea is these three guys are going to, it's, it's a Friday, the bank is going to be closed, there's a holiday on Monday, so the bank is going to be closed until Tuesday. And so they're waiting to see everybody leave. They're going to 
uh, break into the bank and they they have all the tools they need to open you know, to crack open the safe you know with a uh, a blowtorch and all that kind of stuff and so you know they're, they're gonna have uh, you know they'll, they'll be able to do it in about six hours but everyone's gone so you know easy enough for them to do and no one's coming back until tuesday so uh no one's gonna know about it well they go to the bank however the the manager of the bank and his secretary are working late so they're there so that seems like that would be a bad thing but it's actually a good thing because the manager has the keys to the vault so they don't have to do any of that bullshit. They can just open up the vault and give them the money. And then they think, okay, so we'll just tie them up, leave them here, and somebody will event, you know, even if it's still Tuesday, well, they won't, they won't go to the bathroom, they won't be able to eat, but they'll be fine. But the cleaning crew, a couple of old British biddies, show up. <laughs> so they can't just tie them up and leave them there. The, 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 the cleaning crew will find them too soon, and the cop's going to be after their ass too quickly. So they take the manager and his secretary and they lock them in the vault. Now, they know that they're not gonna be able to survive till Tuesday. In fact, you find out later, they're not gonna be able to survive past midnight that night. It's still okay. They escape with the money. What they're gonna do, one of the guys is going to go like way far away from where they are Make a pay phone call on a pay phone, call up the cops, say, hey, look, they're in the vault. And in this phone booth, I'm leaving the keys to the vault so you can let them out. Sounds great. The guy goes to do, do that. He gets into an auto accident and dies. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so now the two robbers know that two people are in the vault. And they're gonna die, and nobody knows they're in there. So now they have to make a decision: do they split, or do they go back to the bank and actually have to crack the safe for real in order to get them out? Huh. That's a great fucking story. Who is it directed by? Vernon Swell, the Vampire Beast Craze Blood Guy. Again, on YouTube, easy to find. So are you guys methodical about your rabbit holes? How do you how do you do it? Do you just go where the wind takes you or do you make lists of actors and directors to pursue? How does it work for you? I I, I sort of started kind of like I was saying, I started kind of just I had so much fun watching some of that. I watched like Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I watched The Devil Rides Out for the first time since I was like 15. Like I'd seen that movie before, but I, I had bought the Blu-ray of it and I was going to oh, watch The Devil Rides Out again. And I was like, that movie is fucking great. Or the, my only like my only like criticism of The Devil Rides Out, which you could say for a lot of some of the films that period, is it's too well lit for a horror film. However, it's still <laughs> so fucking fun. And it was that thing where you watch something again and all of the images that you remember when you're 15 are like, yes, I remember this scene with this massive spider. It's fucking terrifying. But then I, I, I went down a whole rabbit hole of just watching like Hammer Ones again, uh, watching some of the Frankensteins again and watching like some of the other Draculas that I hadn't seen. And like I said, watching Lust for a Vampire and the Vampire Lovers. I mean, there's some other ones on this list as well that like I'd never seen vampires before either. And I realized that I like had, you know, like the you know, I, again, I had the Arrow Blu-ray of it and I was like, oh, I gotta watch this. But there was a couple of other ones on, um, 
there's that Joseph Losey film, These Are the Damned. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, Quentin. Yeah, I've, I've, I've had that forever. And it's one of those ones I've never got around to watching. But I'm not a big Joseph Losey fan. Frankly. Well, I'll say, I'll say this about that one. That These Are the Damned is like a weird mix of like uh, Marlon Brando's, you know, The Wild One. Yeah. and Village of the Damned. It is a real like collision of two different genres, like the biker movie and like a John Wyndham sci-fi movie. And it's really strange and really like unusual. And I, I yeah, very... the, the biker imagery has always attracted me in it. You know, the biker imagery of it has always attracted me. And it and that movie like cra- with Oliver Reed crashes into a like a John Wyndham sci-fi movie. It's really the other one, one of the ones I was so happy to see on the list. And I said this, I re- when I replied to Scorsese, I said, this is one of those movies that I thought only me and my brother had seen. And I'd never like met anybody in my lifetime who'd ever seen it or mentioned it is the Asphyx, like the 1972 yeah. like, horror film with Robert Powell, which is such a great premise. The premise of that movie, Chris, if you haven't seen it, is that- I haven't actually. Scientists, these scientists, I think it's like turn of the century, uh, or it's in Victorian times, yeah. They- figure out that you can capture the soul leaving the body so they create this contraption to capture the souls leaving the body and they capture the souls of people who uh, have been hanged for murder and so they essentially in this movie have captured the soul of like dead murderers so it's like a victorian like sci-fi movie and i mean it's one of those films i like watched it late night on itv and then when you start like before, you know, in that in the pre-internet age where you maybe have to rely on it being in a book, like uh, mm-hmm. some kind of encyclopedia and, and until like sort of like it's that thing where sort of until it, actually you see it again in print, it's like you made it up. When it was on Scorsese's list, it's like, finally, you're the other person who's seen the aspects. <laughs> I mean, oh, one, one other thing, there's one, I, like I said, I have five left to go. And there's one okay. I've left as the final one. And I might have to leave this one until after lockdown is over. Hopefully this year is Underground by Anthony Asquith, the silent movie. And I have it on Blu-ray. And the reason I have not watched it is because my associate producer, Leonora Thompson, Leo, who you both know, her great grandmother, Nora Baring, is the star of that movie. and also her great grandmother looks exactly like her and so (laughs) she's seen it and I said I am not going to watch the uh, underground until you're allowed to come over to the flat and uh, intro the movie and do a QA and a about your great grandmother afterwards (laughs) (laughs) have you seen Highway to Jamaica yet? yeah I did that's a really you know what's funny is Highway to Jamaica is one of those films where it's one of the few, I'm sure it was an absolute pig to make because it's a, all pirate movies seem to kind of like crush the directors. Maybe until like Pirates of the Caribbean came along. Pirate movies mm-hmm. always seem to be like the toughest films to make. I don't know if you've seen that documentary called The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Oh my God, if you haven't, it's amazing. About Peter Medak and Peter Sellers both separately having a breakdown making The Ghost of the Noonday Sun. That documentary is amazing. So when having just recently watched that, watching High Winter Jamaica, I, I was really into it. By, but they actually looked like one of those pirate movies where it seemed like they sometimes like sh- sh- films set on boats. You can tell that the director is obviously having the worst time of his life. <laughs> <laughs> but High Winter Jamaica is a really handsome movie. And I was sort of like, so that was the thing is I felt like, oh, this is one of those pirate movies that doesn't look like it was an utter disaster to make. 
No, I mean, one of the things that was actually funny about it is like, I was like, uh, I got a print of it and I was watching it and I go, can we show this for the kitty matinee? Because it's about these kids. And they go, okay, it's actually kind of a rough kitty matinee movie, but I'm kind of down with a rough kitty matinee movie. It, it still kind of fits the, the tale of these young, of these young people, but it gets, it gets rough, it gets dark. Yeah, one of the kids, in fact, the one, spoiler alert, who doesn't make it, is played by the novelist Martin Amis. Oh, no kidding. Really? <laughs> he's, the, he's the oldest kid. It's a, <laughs> it's a really interesting movie, that. Like, uh, and, and, it's, and it's not really like any other Alexander McKendrick film, either. And one of the other ones that I... Uh, well, actually, two of the other ones that I discovered that... Uh, oh, actually, to answer your question from earlier, is um, when it came to this British these older British films, at first it was random. The stuff, I mean, um, not, not the stuff on the, um, Edgar's list or the stuff on Scorsese's list, but the stuff yeah. I found on my own, it was just whatever sounded interesting. If it had an interesting plot line, it had an interesting actor or whatever. I was just kind of letting the, part of the fun of it was letting the, me going wherever the wind took me. But now it's, you know, but then, you start focusing on people. So now I'm focusing on a Basil Derrida. Now I want to see more John Gilliman, all right, from that same time period of the, of the 60s, black and white movies of his, before he went totally Hollywood. But a couple of ones that I, I found that I discovered that I was really a fan of that I had never really heard of before is another one that I just uh, found is a film called The Hidden Room. It's also known as Obsession uh, from 1949. It's directed by Edward Dimitrik. And uh, and I watched I watched this one because the storyline sounded good, uh, but also Sally Gray's in it, and I'm a big Sally Gray fan. But it stars Robert Newton, and I realized as I'm watching the movie that I've only seen Robert Newton play a pirate before. I've never seen him <laughs> play anything but a pirate. But I've seen him play a pirate like three or four times. But it's that classic story of a coupled husband who's actually he's rich and a genius but you know he's made a couple by his scheming wife and her young lover and so he he plots the murder of her young lover to get revenge and again i don't really care about how it all comes out i didn't buy <laughs> i didn't buy the i didn't buy the wrap-up uh, definitely not as much time was put in the wrap-up as was put in the setup However, Robert Newton comes up with a genius plan to torture and, de and destroy the, uh, um, the lover. And, and it's one of the things that's like so fantastic about the British films of uh, these, these movies from the uh, 40s and the, and the 50s is their dialogue is so good. It's so witty, especially in some of these crime movies. There's, the dialogue is so good, but uh, uh, the hidden room. I'm not going to his plot. You'll have the. I'll let you have the fun of watching it. Yeah. But there, but it's it's like a Columbo episode where the killer is the star. The killer is the lead, and you're rooting for him. And there is even is a Columbo like detective who shows up halfway through, and it's like kind of starts fucking around and starts asking questions and you know he's going to like fig figure it all out later but it but 
you're not on the, you're not you're not on Colombo's side of this. And this side, you know, you're mm. on Donald Pleasant's side. <laughs> then the other then the other thing that I discovered that I think is actually probably pretty well known in England, but I have never heard of it. And it sounds like a pretty classic British film. It's like uh, um, Michael Redgrave and Alexander Knox and, and, and uh, 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 Denholm Elliott when he was like 27 uh, in it. And the girl, the, the girl who's not Ava Gardner that's in uh, uh, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It's called uh, The Night My Number Came Up. Mm, have you I ever heard of that? You, you tell me about it. I've never seen it. Have, uh, Chris, have you ever heard of that? I'll be honest, I don't think I have, but let me just check. The night my number came up. Okay, looking it up, okay, my, my mother could do that. You know, like looking it up gets you nothing. <laughs> no, I was, just, I was just checking. I was just double checking. Just double checking to be, to be, sure, to be sure. Chris didn't want to make another pink Cadillac mistake. <laughs> by the way, by the way, fees of fee, pink Cadillac, Buddy Van Horn directed that. Oh, Buddy Van Horn. Okay, so let's one. If Buddy Van Horn goes into take four, Eastwood's directing. Is Buddy Van Horn the real stuntman, Mike? <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Buddy Van, no, no but Buddy Van Horn is, is the real cliff. Right, right. So we interrupted. <laughs> the Night My Number came up. Yeah, The Night My Number came up. as an interesting fantasy where it's a bunch of high-class people that are in uh, um, the British Embassy in Hong Kong. I believe they're in Hong Kong. They might be in Shanghai. Um, they're in the British Embassy, and uh, a military guy shows up at a little cocktail soiree, and he starts talking about this. Um, and he doesn't even want to talk about it because it's disturbing. But uh, it's brought out of him that he had this really bizarre dream the night before, and he told his attaché, and his attaché, "Oh, you got to tell him the dream. You got to tell him the dream." And he describes a dream that he's not in the dream. He's like just kind of watching everything happen. And it's about a, a, a flight that takes off. And one of the Michael Redgrave's character is like, well, you were on the flight. You were on the flight. Well, but I just, I just met you the night before. So that's why I figured you were in the dream. And he describes this very specific set of situation that happens on this flight. But then the uh, uh, flight crashes and everybody dies. But it's a very specific set of circumstances. It's a specific airplane. Uh, there's eight passengers. There's a VIP on board. One of the eight passengers is a woman. They get lost in, uh, during a storm and they're gonna crash in the uh, uh, mountains of Japan. So all this very, very specific stuff that he describes. Now, Michael Redgrave's character has to take a flight the next, the next day. And little by little by little, everything the guy described in his dream starts little by little falling into place on the plane before they take off. The original Final Destination. Yeah, no, it was very, it was very much kind of Final Destination kind of vibe. To it. It, it was like, a, it was, it was like a, a, a Stairway to Heaven version of Final Destination. Uh. I want, I want to mention one, a little rabbit hole that I went down, like, again, like Chris, to answer your question as well, like it's mm. similar to Quentin. It's sometimes directors and sometimes actors and sometimes both. So I'd seen this Edmund T. Greville film that um, Scorsese recommended called Brief Ecstasy, which is like an hour long. And that was really interesting. And also I am a fan. I think he directed it as well. I love the film Beat Girl, which is directed by Edmund T. Greville. You can maybe check. I, I think I'm right. Mm. Don't even check mm. it. 
maybe check it just to see. I'm not looking anything else up. I'm right. And if like, sort of, and if, if I'm wrong, people can scream at the podcast. Anyway, I love Beat Girl. And in fact, you know, like I love the John Barry soundtrack. I'd seen Brief Ecstasy. And then I had a film that I'd, I already had it on DVD. And I think your own Kim Newman had recommended it to me. And I'd never got around to watching it, even though it, it, it involves murders in Soho. And it's called, <laughs> but it's called Noose. And, and because it was an Edmonton Grove film, and I was thinking, huh, I already have Noose on DVD. And Noose, it features, stars Carol Landis. And I'd been listening to Karina Longworth's podcast. Um, you must remember you this, must remember which is this. ironic. And she did a great series called Dead Blondes, where she talked about actresses who died in their prime. And Carol Landis was one of them. So Noose stars Carol Landis and Nigel Patrick. And Nigel Patrick, <laughs> so this movie is about a gangster who's bumping people off in Soho. It's about, uh, it's not a serial killer, it's about a gangster killing people off. Nigel Patrick's performance is amazing. And also for a, a murder mystery or like thriller, it's actually like really funny. And it sort of is odd because it has this screwball comedy energy. Nigel Patrick is basically playing like a Cockney spiv and Nigel Patrick, who in other movies that we've been talking about, like League of Gentlemen and Sapphire, mm. is quite a posh actor. But seeing Nigel Patrick talk like this, like at 200 miles an hour, he's amazing. <laughs> like, so he's one of those actors that I came away thinking, like, this guy, whenever this guy shows up in a movie, you know it's going to be good. Nigel Patrick is great. No, it's been like watching a Nigel Patrick film festival. He's amazing. It's been like watching a Nigel Patrick film festival, old darling. <laughs> I was going to say, we didn't mention that when you were talking about the strong room, I was very impressed by your use of the word biddies, which is a, <laughs> which is a very English expression saying old biddies. Yeah. I, 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 before, I wanted to mention one other film that like was again was like I had never really heard of and really like floored me that it's on the Scorsese list is uh, kind of, I think the best, there's many films that revolve around Burke and Hare as characters mm. and there's, several films where they're lead, but this is the best Burke and Hare film is 1959's The Flesh and the Fiends with Donald Pleasance and Hot Fuzz is Billy Whitelaw's last movie. Billy Whitelaw's first movie is The Flesh and the Fiends. So I was watching this movie and I was like, it's really disturbing. Donald Pleasance and Peter Cushing is in it as well. I buried the lead. Peter Cushing is the star. Donald Pleasance is so disturbing in the movie, such a brilliant performance. And then Billy Whitelaw, who must be like 25 in it or something, it's so heartbreaking. That movie is great. And like having seen many other Burke and Hare films, I was like, oh, this, this is the best Burke and Hare film. Like The Flesh and the Fiends is really strong, really sad. And like upset about, that was great. I really enjoyed that. Okay, well, Edgar, what, what is your, uh, uh, from the Scorsese list, what is your uh, uh, three or four or five favorites? I think, well, I, I was really knocked out by, uh, let's go, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll reel off like five as they go through. I really liked um, So Long at the Fair. Uh, I'd seen Green for Danger. I'm not going to count ones I'd seen before. Green for Danger is great, but I'd seen that before. Um, Guns of Patazzi was a real surprise to me. The Queen of Spades was like knockout. I was really surprised by that. It was amazing. Um, That's the one I want to see next, actually. Pink String and Ceiling Wax is really good. The most English title on the whole list. I know. <laughs> and it's quite, also it sounds like a comedy. That's the thing. Pink String and Ceiling Wax sounds like a, you know, kind of like, or like a Gilbert and Sullivan, Gilbert O'Sullivan. <laughs> like, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, not Gilbert O'Sullivan. <laughs> That's very different, yeah. What, is that five? Let's, um, 
The other thing as well, like sort of the, the, the other thing as well, apart from Nigel Patrick, is like the thing of like what I call the subgenre as James Mason is a bastard movies. <laughs> And like, there's a lot of if you if you like your James Mason cold and unfeeling, like the Seventh Veil, the Man in Grey, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman. It's like James Mason is like so great. Like in like, <laughs> I was thinking, did I? I'm not sure if I picked five, but there was like some ones that I tell you another one that we didn't mention uh, that I hadn't seen before, which is a Basil Deirdre movie, but is not like the others. It's the movie The Halfway House, which isn't really like any other any other Basil Deirdre movie. And it's like some strange mix, and it is an Ealing film, but it's like a strange mix of like a whiskey galore stroke Brigadoon, but like has a, a, a really profound ending. Like, I guess in a sort of matter of life and death, stay away to, stay away to heaven, that's what it's called in the States. Yeah. The Halfway House, it starts in a very light way, and then the ending really floored me. And that was like, it's a bit Twilight Zone-ish, but it wasn't like any other Basil Dearden movie and it had a really sort of profound and sad ending. I was kind of knocked out by that as well. So that's five. But I mean, there wasn't many that like I, you know, even things like I'd seen uh, David Lean, I'd actually watched This Happy Breed just before Scorsese sent the email, which I was I was kind of knocked out by that. But The Sound Barrier I'd never seen. And that's like a, a, a really quite a dark film, much darker than you'd expect given the subject matter. So that, I mean, I mentioned a bunch of them, but. My, my favorite, not, not just of the Scorsese list, but of the, of the British ones that I've seen during our, our, our time, Guns of Batazzi, number one, uh, All Night Long, very, very close, number two, Sapphire, I think Sapphire and Pandora and the Flying Dutchman are fighting it out. For third, for fourth, I guess, yeah, for, fourth, for, for the fourth co- position. For, for the coveted Nigel Patrick Technicolor spot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, okay, Sapphire wins if it's yeah. all about, about Nigel Patrick. Um, but then when it comes to like the fifth position, I mean, uh, it could be so long at the fair, it could be the night my number came up, it could be strong room. And uh, hell, uh, uh, hidden room could be in there too. Uh, 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 but especially but especially those three, you easily could uh, uh, fit the the fifth spot. I'd like to actually just bring up um, a couple of British movies, not that I've that I've seen before, that are like not talked about that much. But what I would add to this list of uh, uh, ones for audiences to look up and check out, uh, talking about the J. Lee Thompson early movies is one of his best. Of, uh, well, two actually. Uh, uh, of his best ones is one is a, a, a his first his first official I think it's what we call his first official thriller. Uh, it's, it's in the similar vein to Tiger Bay called The Yellow Balloon. Oh yeah, I've never seen that one. It's fantastic, and it's another like well, like a, 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 a little boy witnesses a murder and, and gets uh, uh, manipulated by the murderer, and uh, and it stars uh, um, uh, Kenneth Moore is in it. He plays the little boy's father. And the actor uh, from uh, Robert Aldrich's movie Attack, William Smithers, an American, plays the killer in it. The little boy's really good in it. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it was uh, J. Lee Thompson's first official successful thriller because J. Lee Thompson, if J. Lee Thompson could have, he said, if he could have become Alfred Hitchcock, he would have been happy to do that. If he did, if he did nothing but thrillers for the rest of his career, he would have been very very happy by that. Uh, But the Yellow Balloon is terrific. But I love. I actually think 
J. Lee Thompson did one of the great last movies of all time with Kinjete, the uh, Charles Bronson movie Kinjete. Is that the one I, that's Forbidden Subjects? Is that the yeah, subtitle? Yeah. I've never, I've never seen that movie. It's, it's one of the great last movies of all time. I'm a fan of all the Bronson Cannon, J. Lee Thompson movies that he did during that period. I'm a fan of every single one of them. Not so much the Bronson 70s ones, but the Bronson Cannon 80s ones. I am a fan of. Uh, I don't, not the Mac and Winter ones. Not, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the craziness of Death Wish 3. I'm talking about the J. Lee Thompson ones. But Kenjete is in a different class. It's, it's about as fucked up a movie as, as it can possibly be. And that's one of the things about J. Lee Thompson is he, he's a bit of a pervert and he leans into his perversion of his characters and he makes you one with the, you know, with these very dubious characters. And that happens in a big way in Kinjete and, and on both sides, both the good guy side and the bad guy side. But if Kinjete is one of the best last movies, J. Lee Thompson's first movie, Murder Without Crime, starring Dennis Price, is one of the great first movies. And a lot of people don't know this, J. Lee Thompson started out as a playwright. And this is, he got his first film as a director, Murder Without Crime, because it's based on a play he wrote. And it's, this, and it, and it's a, 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 a little murder mystery with, magnificent dialogue. Dennis Price gives, uh, if you watch Dennis Price in, in, in this amicus anthology movie and that amicus anthology movie and this one and that one, and you wonder who is this, uh, who is this old British guy that just uh, is, who's just this name that you've heard that shows up in, the, in a bunch of British cast. When you see Murder Without Crime, you'll realize who Dennis Price is. He's absolutely, <laughs> He, he's priceless, you might say. He's, um, he's also amazing. In, I mean, Kind Hearts and Coronets is also oh, like... Yeah, yeah, well, yes, absolutely. I was going to say, do you call it the Bronson Cannon Cannon? Yes, I do call it the Bronson <laughs> Cannon Cannon. The 80s Bronson Cannon. Well, no, the, 80s, the Cannon and the 80s are synonymous with each other. A film that I'm the hugest fan of, and nobody, this is a film that nobody ever talks about. It's the movie that made me a Sally Gray fan. I like the George Sanders Saint movies, but one of them, one made in Britain, is called The Saint in London. And it's an official British movie because it's an RKO film, but it was a situation where RKO had a bunch of move, had a bunch of money in Britain and they couldn't take it out. So all they could do is uh, spend it in Britain. So they made uh, so they sent George Sanders to England to do a, 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 one of his Saint movies. And the hands down, the best of the bunch is the Satan London of that entire series. It's after, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the George Sanders movies, Action in Arabia. After Action in Arabia, to me, the Saint in, Lo in London is George Sanders' best lead, lead performance. It's him and Sally Gray together. They are magnificent together. This is a movie that made me a Sally Gray fan. It is so charming and the dialogue is so funny and the character is so great. It's, 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 Absolutely. I'm, and I'm a fan of, I've read a bunch of the Leslie Charteris uh, Saint stories. It's, it's terrific. Also, I've um, been talking about Nigel Patrick. Have you seen the movie Nigel Patrick directed? No. He directed a movie called Johnny Nobody, starring himself and Aldo Ray. No, I have not seen that. And 
that's an interesting movie where Nigel Patrick plays a priest. Yvonne Mitchell's in it too. Nigel Patrick plays a priest in a village. And in this village, William Bendix, who I'm never a fan of, plays this horrible bully. I mean, he's like the meanest man in town and he's, 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 he's mean to everybody. He's cruel to everybody. Everybody fucking hates him. And he's being his horrible self. He's being his horrible self. And then he says in a mocking way, if I'm God, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, may God strike me dead. And then out of an alley, we've never met him before ever. He's never been in this town. Aldo Ray steps out of the alley with a gun and shoots William Hendricks dead. And everybody goes, who are you? Why did you do that? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> What's your name? I don't know. <laughs> Why did you kill him? I have no idea. Oh, wow. And he's Johnny Nobody. He's Johnny Nobody. And then the final one of my, uh, my British ones that I would recommend is I'm a big Michael Parks fan. And during Michael Parks' era, when he was uh, starring in, in, in features and they were grooming him to be a big leading man, is a British film he did that Daniel Petrie directed called The Idol. And it stars uh, Jennifer Jones and it, it stars uh, Michael Parks, Jennifer Jones, and John Lydon. Not famous butter salesman John Lydon from the Sex Pistols. <laughs> no, 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 no. And the whole, that whole story is Michael Parks is this incredible arrogant asshole art student who, American art student who's in London going to art school. And, you know, he's arrogant and he has this whole bohemian way of, of doing it. He, he's, a, you know, he thinks he's a great artist and he probably is. And he's better than everybody. He's, he's better than all the British kids. So they all kind of look up to him. And one of his classmates is uh, uh, John Layden, who has complete hero worship of him. Absolute complete hero worship of him. But he's also a mama's boy, completely controlled. Uh, John Layden is a mama's boy, completely controlled by Jennifer Jones. So the entire movie is a struggle for this kid's soul. Who's going to win? The asshole domineering yeah. friend best friend or the or the uh the suffocating mother and it's a really really good it, it's and it's 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 my favorite of uh, all of michael parks's uh uh lead performances when he was a young gorgeous leading man uh, it's a hell of a list it has to be said but quentin did i hear you guys say earlier on that you hadn't seen the blue lamp i've seen okay no he's seen the blue lamp yeah okay because that's really you know what you know what's interesting about the blue lamp as well, Edgar, don't you? Well, I mean, the blue lamp spawned the first British cop show, the Dixon of Doc Green. Yeah. Uh, so, because Jack, Jack Warner, who, if I'm right in thinking, spoiler alert, Jack Warner dies in the blue lamp. Dirk Bergart kills him, but mm -hmm. then that character was so successful that Quentin it became the first British cop show, uh, Dixon of Doc Green, with his catchphrase "Evening all." And it was so it was an, I, it, it, unusual because like a character who actually dies in the blue lamp then goes on to have a very long running cop show. I was going to say as well, and I'll rattle through these fast because uh, apart from anything else, my battery's dying. 
Um, yeah, my bag <laughs> resigned too. I'm like, <laughs> if I just all of a sudden pop off this show, that's why. <laughs> and I'm going to say two things really quickly, and I'll rattle through these with that. But, you know, Scorsese said at the end of his email, he says, if I've missed any, do let me know if there's any that you like. And it's like, well, that's a sort of, Martin Scorsese has probably seen more films than Leonard Morton. That was a, a big ask, but I tried. So I sort of thought, I rattled off a few that he hadn't mentioned. One of them was League of Gentlemen, Basil Dearden. Another one, which is a really good movie by Basil Dearden called Frida, which is about a... Um, a World War II like POW who who marries a German woman and brings her back to England and then she suffers like the sort of xenophobia against Germans even though she isn't one of the bad guys they think she is. Pool of London, which we talked about, victim. Jay Lee Thompson's No Trees in the Street. Um, uh, Brian Forbes' Seance on a Wet Afternoon, which is another yeah. killer Richard Attenborough movie. Hell, Dri- <laughs> Hell Drivers, which has... I think the, the the cast that could be the six degrees of Kevin Bacon in itself, it features Stanley Baker, Patrick McGowan, Sean Connery, Sid James, Herbert Lom, and original Doctor Who, William Hartnell. A great movie, which nobody talks about, apart from Mark Gatiss, who recommended it to me, the world, and Kim Newman as well, The World Ten Times Over, Wolf Riller's 1963 film with Sylvia Sidney is, and William mm. Hartnell again is really good. The Small World of Sammy Lee, which... Mm. Anthony Newley stars in, which is directed by Ken Hughes, which is like the uncut gems of its day. The Small World of Sammy Lee is fantastic. One of Quentin's favorites, Ice Cold and Alex, by mm-hmm. um, uh, with John Mills and Sylvia Sims, J. Lee Thompson. Waterloo Road with John Mills and uh, our friend uh, Stuart Granger, my granny's favorite, um, directed by Sidney Gillat. Whistle Down the Wind, the Brian Forbes film, which I think is fantastic, and Tiger Bay. By J. Lee Thompson. Oh, I'm big. You stand at Tiger Bay. Another great one that was just re-released on Blu-ray, and this film is a riot, Passport to Shame, with uh, Herbert Lom, featuring in a very blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo, playing extras at a wedding, Michael Caine and Anne Reed from Hot Fuzz in their first screen roles, not saying anything. <laughs> um, it also has, um, what's the, it also stars Eddie Constantine from Alphaville. The Flesh is Weak and The uh, Bitter Harvest, the former starring John Derrick. And then there's a bunch of ones that are on the flip side label that BFI re-released that are really good fun. That Kind of Girl, The Pleasure Girls with um, Francesca Annis and Klaus Kinski. I already mentioned Beat Girl, which I love. There's a really good um, Val Guest film that's shot in Cinemascope called The Beauty Jungle, which is sadly on a shitty DVD. I hope one of those labels restores that because it's really good. And then I just reeled off the... Um, some of the Italian Jello films that are shot in London, because all of the, those ones are ones that I watched when I was before I made so. What have you done to Solange? Lizard in a Woman's Skin by Lucia Fiorci. All the Colors of the Dark, starring your favorite. Uh, uh, how do you pronounce her name? Edwige. Edwige Finette. The final thing I want to say to wrap this back up, I'm going to do a callback. You mentioned Death Wish Three, and to so I just want to talk about one experience you can only have in a cinema. I once screened Death Wish Three at the Curzon Soho as a midnight movie. And I did a little intro for it. And in Michael Winner at that point in his career, and I think he'd ripped off this shot from um, Sidney J. Fury in the Ipcrest file. Michael Winner always shoots like wide shots from behind a lampshade. Like it's like, it's like his establishing shot. It's like a wide angle shot from behind a lamp or a lampshade. <laughs> in Death Wish, I sort of said to the audience, I said, I want you to do something whilst you're watching this movie. Every time Michael Winner shoots behind a lampshade, I want you to break out in applause. 
Now, there are a lot of fucking lampshade shots. <laughs> but then it's like the funniest screening of Death Wish 3 because people are just clapping every time they see a lampshade. And it happens, I kid you not, like 35 times. <laughs> you know, I had a screening like that in um, uh, a festival that uh, Terry Flameau from the Cannes Film Festival does in Lyon, where it's a classic film festival. And I asked to have a screening of the Claude Loche movie, The Crook show. Right. I'm a big fan of that film. In the movie, now, my thing might literally run out as we're talking. Uh, 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 my battery. Um, so Claude Loche shows up for the screening. So he's there. The theater is jam-packed. You can tell that most people hadn't seen this film. It's a really good uh, crime thriller with uh, Jean-Louis Trintignant. In the movie, this whole thing is worked out where uh, part of the crime is, is uh, uh, the woman doing this weird kidnapping con job is pretending to be part of a, a radio advertisement. And then they say this one phrase through the whole movie, uh, they, in, in this in this saying of uh, 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 "Merci Simka," which was an actual phrase for a Simka was some sort of a product in 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 uh, France at the time. I think it's a, a I, I don't remember if it's if it's a coffee or if it's a sweetener, or if it's a soft drink or if it's a camera. It's some product, but "Merci Simka" was the slogan, and it's used in a big way in this. Um, uh, in this con crime thing that they do. And it ends up being said a lot in the course of the movie. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, if this movie was more popular, Mercy Simca would actually be a thing that people would say to each other and be a nice throwback to the crook. Now in France, they don't really have a big, they're not famous for their sense of humor when it comes to this kind of audience interaction, when it comes to movies, almost exactly what we're talking about in this entire podcast. So I'm introducing the movie. I've chosen the movie. Claude Loche is in the theater with me. And I say, okay, I want to do something special for this screening of the movie. Every time a character in the movie says, Mercy Simka, I want you, the audience, to scream back at the screen, Mercy Simka. <laughs> Every single time. So you're going to do it. So let's try it now. Mercy Simka. Mercy Simka. Mercy Simka. Mercy Simka, okay, that's it. That's what we're doing. Lights rolling. And I'm sitting next to Claude Lelouch and the movie starts. And halfway through, they start doing the Mercy Simka thing and the audience is screaming back, Mercy Simka. <laughs> Claude Lelouch is having one of the best times he's ever had screening <laughs> one of his movies. He's never seen a French audience respond this way. And at a certain point, after it happens the 10th time, he starts punching me in the arm. He's laughing so hard and enjoying himself so much. He's hitting me as hard as he can in my shoulder because he just thinks it's the grooviest experience. And the audience is laughing and having the best time. And when it was like his... His, his wife was the star of the film. And so when the movie's over, his like 25 year old son, oh my God, that was the best screening I ever had in one of my dad's movies. My mom is in the movie. It was amazing. Thank you, Quentin. Thank you. 
one thing I always liked is I think Penn and Teller came up with this thing where Penn and Teller used to have a movie club in New York where they would go as a gang and when they had certain rules and one of them is if the title of the film is said <laughs> aloud in dialogue, they would stand up and give it a standing ovation. And it became <laughs> like a thing. And I always think about it all the time. And weirdly enough, like it's that thing of like if the type the, the best one ever of those is in a perfect storm. I think the weatherman, Christopher McDonald, the actor, says <laughs> and it's a dolly intro, he goes, this could be beat, 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 the perfect storm. <laughs> and it's funny, in, in Last Night in Soho, somebody says Last Night in Soho, and to myself, even when I'm watching it, I go, Wee! <laughs> That's it. I want to say after like uh, over three hours, the thing that we really learned today is who the director of Pink Cadillac is. (laughs) (laughs) And we will never forget. We will never forget. I mean, just look it up. Buddy Van Horn. (laughs) Precisely. Guys, I could talk to you all day or listen to you talk all day. This has been phenomenal. Um, But time and your batteries are against this. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, This has been amazing. I got this list yesterday. Uh, I've got a lot of catching up to do. As I'm sure lots of people listening to this at home have as well. Uh, And as indeed do our guests. So I'm going to let them go and get on with that. So I want to say, Mercy Simka. (laughs) Mercy Quentin and Mercy Edgar. And Mercy Martin's, <laughs> Martin, Martin Scorsese as well. Yes, Mercy Empire. Blimey. So, that was Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino in conversation, and I reckon that had their batteries not been on the verge of giving up the ghost, we might still have been nattering away. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I hope that, like me, you have a ton of new, well, old movies that you're now desperate to catch up on. I've already added a ton to my Cinema Paradiso waitlist. The night my number came up, here I come. And while you're here, I have some plugging to do and I've saved it to the end. If you are new to the Empire Podcast and you've liked what you've heard today, we put out a free podcast every single Friday wherever you cast your pods. It has movie news, it has movie reviews, it has listener questions, it has interviews with amazing guests. Our most recent is one Mr. E. Wright of Wells Somerset, but I promise you that we have podcasts that don't have Edgar Wright on them. Not that that's a recommendation. And the podcast is a ton of fun. Trust me. And if you're not new to the Empire Podcast, then you can stop listening now, pretty much. We've got loads of great interview specials in our feed as well. And the sensational new issue of Empire featuring Edgar Wright and 39 of his closest friends, is available now in all good and evil news agents and online as well. It's one of the best issues I've ever been involved with in my time at the magazine, so pick up a copy now before it's too late. Right, that's enough plugging from me. I am off to have the name of the director of Pink Cadillac, which I did know. I swear, I swear to you, I have seen that film. I know that J. Lee Thompson did not direct it, but for some reason, I had a J. Lee Thompson brain fart at the worst possible moment. But anyway, I'm off to get the name of the director of Pink Cadillac tattooed on my arm, so I'll never forget what's his name. I'll send a bill to a Mr. Q, Tarantino. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.